Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome to Reality Check Radio with the Greenwash team, me Jaspreet and my co-host Don Nicholson. Happy Monday everyone, hope you're doing well. Yeah, well, hi, Jasper, and boy, you've had a couple of weeks off, and you're looking fresh as a daisy. Man, you you drop it, Don. It is too early in the show to begin this. But God, I've certainly thought this this there's some global warming when you need some. Southland was freezing over the last weekend. We had some snow, ice, hail, everything. Well, at least um, the uh, authority, you know, they. Met officer or whoever you you subscribe to got it right. They knew there was going to be a bit of a storm, and we got it. And that's not unique. I mean, I've lived here sixty six years. That is not unique for October. So, look, let's get over it. It's just a bit of bit of weather. And in fact, we have been told that El Nino is on its way, and El Nino affects us uh, in in a in a pretty average way. Really, we we can't expect expect a great summer right on the south coast. We just can't expect that if they've got it right. Mm, but everything is, you know, prefixed by an unprecedented. 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 Nothing like that's ever come up from the Antarctica before, has it? Ever. No. No, only, we're, we've only got 45 degrees of separation, but by God, it was cold. <laughs> it, it was it was really cold, bringing the firewood again. <laughs> I didn't think this late in October one would need it, but what do we know? Mm. Right. For listeners, our number is 2057 for sending us a text or email us at inbox at the rate reality check dot radio. And uh, we've had a break last weekend. We were the lucky ones um, on Labor Monday. So Don and I had some time off. He looks well rested. I don't know about myself. Let's (laughs) have a look at some of the feedback that's come through, Don. Yeah, well, there's been some good ones, hasn't there? And Lindley gave us a nice um, compliment. Thanks for a fantastic panel discussion on Greenwashed. And remember, that was with the ex-Fed Farmers president. Uh, we're having a bit of a chat. Please continue with the idea. So, yeah, I think we will. I think it worked pretty well. And we've had you know, more than Lindley giving good feedback about that. Yep, we've had, we had that panel for anyone who missed that was, including Don, four ex-presidents of the Federated Farmers, um, the Monday after the elections and sort of talking about what to expect and where are things heading in the rural space. And where are they heading currently, even before we carry on with the rest of it? I mean, we still don't know how we're going to be governed. I mean, we probably shouldn't give it too much dignity because you and I know that governments have far too much say in our lives. We need less of them, not more of them. But it would be nice to know who isn't going to be in the hot seat and who's who is with them in actual fact in that hot seat and how who's going to be in the minister's portfolios. But we won't know that, I don't think, until November 3 at I the latest. To be honest, honest here, Don. I am very jaded where centre government elections are concerned. I mean, I honestly, hand on heart, do not see them as anything, anything but a change of guard. So there, I've said it. I've got it off my chest. That is what I have always felt. And that's why my I, I think that's my inf- I think that's my influence of a couple of weeks ago coming through. My grumpy <laughs> moment. I'm pleased you've got it. I, I've made someone. I've finally got someone believing me. <laughs> And that's Good why work. my focus has been on local. How do you fight the globalist nonsense heading your way? You fight it at the local level. Your mm-hmm. whatever your local community groups, your councils, your whatever groups you're part of, 
your local yes. representatives and they could be anyone they could be actually even just your local businesses who might be pushing something you're not happy with mm-hmm. it might be a business just deciding hey we're not going to take cash anymore anything well, but it has to be at a local level and again before we carry on with feedback i've got a big issue when i hear uh farmers groups saying uh we're going to sign off on a certain bit of regulation from say the environment council down this way uh sorry if you're a sort of a, a little catchment group or you're a group of farmers who say um that you're okay with a certain regulation or something like that 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 the council wants to put upon you you have no right to say that that's okay for every farmer around you in the province you have no right and it wouldn't surprise me one day that if there is some legal challenges taken against farmers who do seed who who have pr- who take the rights of an individual and put it uh, into the regulatory framework and say it's okay so as a farmer i never cede sovereignty to anybody i just won't and yet there, as fed farmers chairman president i never could sign off stuff and say uh this is okay to the government or local government cuz i didn't own the farms exactly it, sovereignty is vital so why do we have these farmers and i know plenty of them now who poke their nose up and say oh i'm okay with that regulation no once you say that you've you've dignified a problem a process and a problem for other people 100% so anyway, that's, agree That That's... is absolutely right because there's so many who just seem to decide that they can mandate stuff on you stuff you have not consulted with stuff you've not agreed with and stuff that you possibly you know actually think is outlandish I, but because I, they've taken the lead and they've got funding to push it boy do they do that yeah and that they're called appeasers or useful idiots or whatever you want to call them but they are all around us and yeah I'm a bit over it cuz that's the biggest problem we face in new zealand today is um the diminution of the property right the disrespect for it by um by others and i just wish we could um sort that out i wish and we could i don't know how you look at it don but you know you've always said 1984 you were nearly broke and new zealand hmm. farmers signed up into an ets an efficiency trading scheme no more subsidies but when i look at these catchment groups funding do you look at it the same way i see subsidies now in a way total subsidies given these are subsidies being given yeah. and we are now buying back into the compliance regime uh, and once you've prostituted yourself into that you're in the hand of the regulator and you can't say oh don't like this other rule because you've taken money in one hand and they're going to put a rule on the other hand at you and any time they want to throw more rules at you you can have they say oh we don't like that isn't that interesting part of our uh, some of our guests are here to go to be talking about this stuff but um i read the other day where are in ireland there was a payment being made if you did your health and safety plan and you actually had quad bike helmets uh as yep. uh, as a as a matter of business you had them and that's fine but you actually got a payment for doing that imagine that you got a payment for filling out a bit of paper that said you've got motorcycle helmets or quad bike helmets on your farm i mean that's what new zealand doesn't need anything like that but what you've just talked about where the catchment group does get a bit of a payoff for for doing xyz like a planting or something like that 
There is no need for any of that. If farmers were left with their own money uh, in the pocket, the pocket money yeah. they earn in their pocket, good farmers do the right thing when they have enough cash left. It's Precisely. Filtering it through the hands of others, there's what's called a dead weight loss, and you get less value out of it once it's been filtered through the hands of others. Completely. And that's <laughs> that's what, you know, they set up the Sustainable Food and Fibers uh, yeah. Funding Futures, Sustainable Food and Fiber Futures Projects, SFF Futures, they called it. Mm. And the amount of groups that have been set up through it, the amount of money that's been funneled through it and all of this, what what was stopping farmers doing all of this themselves? Nothing. Well, in, in, in certain smaller European countries, small farmers did get squeezed. They did get squeezed. And of course, the industrialized uh, sort of countries there say, well, we, we quite like having farmers on the farms. We'll pay them to stay there. So we'll, we'll offset this with a bit of taxpayer cash. Well, you know, that's a slippery slope as they're finding right now. It doesn't fix anything. Doesn't fix yeah. anything. So anyway, that's a, a diversion. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. I had to get that off my chest early. No, no. Let's I get on to some more feedback. Yeah. Uh, look, we got a, we got a, an accusation that um, uh, we're sort of supporting Groundswell. Well, we're supporting anyone who wants to tell their story. And we certainly don't uh, have any favours with Groundswell. And we certainly um, don't have any favours with um with any political party necessarily either if everyone anyone that wants to come on and tell their story is welcome uh but clearly uh i'm not going to be pandering to people that are extreme left i'm just not yeah i mean if i read out this exact comment and uh, it's unattributed and uh, listeners may i request at this point that if you send us a text if you would just pop in your name at the end of the text we'd be able to you know read out your name because people do send us texts, but then just a phone number pops up. So this text was, did not Groundswell uh, come out in support of National just before the elections? If so, and I might be wrong, Greenwash's seeming support of Groundswell and Bryce does my head in. Now, I think we've asked many people to come on. Some come on, some don't. And Dawn and I have never pre-rehearsed questions that we're going to, you know, ask them this or not ask them this or something. It is, it's pretty much a very frank discussion as you hear it. And uh, as Bryce has allowed his views, I think, uh, Don, we asked him some pretty uh, curly questions there. Well, I think so. And um, I don't think we're um, we're in his in his hand, that's for sure. I <laughs> yes. mean, he, he knows damn well um, you are my views on things and he's very cautious around us. So, um yeah, I I don't agree with this right um this feedback, yeah. but but yeah, you've got the right to give it give it to us. I mean Absolutely. No, we appreciate it. And in case you were wondering that whether we would uh, read it out or not, well, we just did. Mm. I have no qualms admitting that uh, we'll have anyone on the show who one wants to talk as long as they don't uh, you know give us a list that this you cannot ask. And Bryce never did that. Yeah, and I've I've never had um, any feeling which political party they they are aligned with. If they're aligned with any political party directly, they're stupid. Yeah. Uh, you know, I say that because they want to be an independent advocate. You can't be aligned if you want to have uh, independence around your advocacy. Because effectively, um, look, I I I would imagine most of them are. Um, of the people that support Groundswell are in the centre or the centre-right. 
But who knows? Who am I to say that? Who am I to say that? So Groundswell would be very silly if they thought they could pick winners out of a political party. Yeah. Mm. We have Mike from Foxton, and Mike has uh, emailed us a few times. And Mike says that he does a sausage sizzle for his local BFF group as at his farmer's market in Foxton. He takes yeah. a lot of pride in the product he sells, mm. the sausages, uh, you know, the provenance of those. And he says at the last market, just when things were winding down, a young couple came up and wanted to know what my T-shirt was on about. He was wearing an RCR T-shirt. Thank you, Mike. And they purchased, the young couple purchased a sausage and they said FRCR asked FRCR promoted funding, and uh, we, he, this gentleman Mike and his friend replied that yep, of course they do, and our primary producers are the backbone of the country, and so on. The mm. two young people were very upset with Mike's stance and proceeded to tell us that twelve million cows were causing the demise of the planet and would eventually kill everyone in this country due to climate change and how the beef industry was a blight on the whole ecosystem. Mike goes on to say, I'm sick of these young people who've not lived and very have very little in the way of life skills. And then I asked if they liked the real beef sausages they were eating. And guess what? They did. They loved them all. The irony of it all. The irony of it all. It's, it's almost as ironic as Lewis Hamilton's having, having his um, pets being fed um, a vegan diet. It's a bit bit rich to have um, a motorhead, a petrol head, a, a you know a racing car driver, um, sort of have uh, his pets have to have vegan diets. Very yeah. similar, isn't it? The hypocrisy of it all. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, look, good on them. They they made they at least fronted those people, and they may have been stooges for the Green Party, but at least they fronted and admitted what they were eating was rather nice. And that's what it's all about, to be able to have civil conversations, just mm. a conversation. That's it. We've had a comment from Paul here, who was obviously listening to Tony Seabrook from the Western Australia Pastoralists and Graziers Association. And he says, listen to this guy, referring to Tony. Why is he a farmer? Not because he loves the animals. He speaks of the sheep like they are a mass-produced commodity, not a living creature. And this is what I don't like about farmers and industrial farming. No sympathy for their plight with the inhumane live exports. Paul. Well, you know, the farmers of West Australia have a right to farm what they wish. And at the moment, they've been squeezed by the, the ban on live exports. There is a lack of processing capacity in Western Australia. And so it's a three-day trip to the East Coast. Um, so which way do you want it? It makes no sense either, you know, to do that if the export market, live export market was uh, was still there, there would be none of this problem. <clears throat> and so, yeah, the squeeze again comes down and, to the and, and I wonder, and how, how, how do this speak, how, do, how does he refer to Western Australia as uh, industrial farming? He <laughs> yes. needs to look at some farms in the US and see the difference on the, you know, feedlot raised yeah. uh, stock and Western Australia. I look Western Australia. There's, there's, it's very broad acre. Um, yeah, not high density farming. That's for no, sure. No. But, and so the key thing we were trying to point out in that um, discussion, in fact, Tony was trying to point out, was the anxiety that it's creating. And some farmers take their own lives. They're down, having to do stuff that no one ever wants to do. 
and some are shooting their stock that's, because that's right now I mean. they're making five five dollars because uh, even transporting them they don't even make those costs back. So there it is what it is. And that was my point about farmers taking their own lives. There. And it's and it's almost like taking uh, considering because that's what Paul's opinion seems to be that the live export has no regulations altogether. It's like shove them all in and off they go. It's like there is no oversight or no regulator over there. I, and I have to say that has must have been getting better as mm. time's gone on. Of course. I mean, just like all other practices. Better. Yes, yes. So I, um, I don't think we, you can't dismiss the concern people have with live exports or any, um, any farming systems. But let the farmers be the farmers. And other people get keep their nose out. Now they can be consumers. Resist with as, as the point of resistance for you can be your consumption habits. Yeah. There's uh, another text here from Ian. Hi, Jasprit and Don. Love the Alice Cooper introduction. That uh-huh. that song was uh, elected. Yes. That was the name of the song, Don. Yes. yes. Look, we we put a bit of thought into getting these songs, and we're not going to win every every time. But um, <laughs> I think it's a bit of humour and a bit of upbeats, yeah. upbeat stuff around our opinions is quite good. And Ian goes on to say, on the relegation of Simon O'Connor to you know well down the party list, and Maureen Poo, mm. he says, Luxon is a man-made climate change zealot. He's made it clear he doesn't want climate deni- climate change deniers in the caucus. There are two examples of what happens if we counter his climate change madness. He's a dangerous globalist. We need to have uh, NZ first in the coalition. Well, we'll see as Ian, as time goes on, what happens. Two weeks later, we are still none the wiser. Thank you for your wonderful ongoing education you provide around the UN and the globalist agenda. Jaspreet, I have learned so much from your presentations right back at the beginning of the VFF webinars. Great show. Keep up the super work and the fantastic rest rolling in. Very kind words, Ian. Thank you so much. Yeah, and there's a few more in that vein about Simon O'Connor and his um, his rate ranking in the list list of national. And one says, do you think they put Simon O'Connor so far down the list and did a hit job on him to get rid of him? Uh, was that Luxon and those pulling strings saw Simon as a future threat to Luxon's leadership? Well, I don't think it was like that. But uh, who knows? I mean, Simon... Uh, O'Connor is Simon Bridges' brother-in-law, and you do wonder if there was some bad blood there. But I could never understand why they did put Simon O'Connor as far down the list as they did. Um, but then again, only five from the list, uh, or five or six from the national, made it in anyway. So, yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, Brooke uh, Van Velden did a great job, and um, and Tamakian took the seat. Yep. Gave act to two two um, parliamentary seats, two electorate seats. Good honour. And talking of past guests, as Ian says, keep the fantastic guests rolling in. I think we'll take a wee trip down the memory lane, Don, if mm. I may, because mm. uh, this week's uh, Rural Guardian has had comments from, uh, has had opinion pieces from a couple of our uh, recent guests. We have Helen Mandeno, who was on our show about six weeks back, and Helen has since then... Uh, Joined the methane accord. Yeah, and trying she is to get all... some sense into the methane madness currently yeah. blighting this country. <laughs> and she's had a very good um, acceptance of a piece on the Brash Bassett and Hyde um, blog as well. So, yeah, 
she's doing great work. Um, I remember when Helen came on our show, she was quite shy and, um, you know, concerned about it. She is just blossoming, as they say. And I don't mean that to be um, sort of a, a, a sort of what sort of comments that some derogatory comment that's no that's, no no it's I mean it wonderful to see her taking her fight further yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. yep likewise yeah. we there's another opinion from piece from jamie mcfadden and we had jamie on about two months ago it was still winter then though it feels like winter to me in southland right now and about how public agencies are challenged have been challenged over their freshwater science it's it's almost like the science. Who owns the science? There is Helen Mandeno asking about this, asking, demanding a scientific approach to the methane madness. There is Jamie McFadden asking about, uh, you know, the freshwater science, questioning that. God, you would wow. think these guys, this whole lot, seem to think the scientists settle the ones, the regulators, and they just don't want to answer people's questions. Well, isn't it interesting how they're turning to be as sceptical as you and I are? These people are starting to put stuff out that um, yeah. is starting to be more questioning. And it's next week uh, we're going to have a Dr. Uh, Yarp Hunnekamp on, and he's a Dutch um, chemist, uh, theologian, you name it, he's everything. But he's got a motto to ask. His his query is always, but is this true? And what a great um when we've already interviewed this guy so we'll get him on next week but we know his his ethic and the way he works it is stunning and it's a lesson for us all so i employ you next week that's another another good interview we're going to play and it was Talking another off past guest terry body yeah is oh, uh, the dutch politician we had on again i'd say just over two months back and uh, he was our first speaker from holland and uh, he has been recently, a couple of days back, he's been attacked as he was going towards uh, a public meeting. The news articles, of course, must uh, prefix Terry by saying Dutch far-right leader attacked by a man outside a conference venue being hit on the head. And the attacker shouted, screamed, say no to fascism as he was hitting Terry on the head. Well, I hope he's well. I haven't seen far-right I haven't seen much from the media about how Terry is doing, but this is what it's come to. Amazing. Uh, we can't have a debate, a rational, honest debate, and people get so worked up that this is how they take their angst out. Oh, yeah. And you and I have been labelled alt-right, alt-right in recent weeks by a, a New Zealand scribe. I'm, I don't know whether that's <laughs> a badge of honour or not. I'm well, just waiting I... for the white supremacist, Don, because who knows in this topsy-turvy world, I might just be even called a white supremacist. Uh, yeah, no, we've got mm. um, we've got a long way to go to get uh, to get some common sense and some respect back in the New Zealand um, debates. Really, respect is what we all deserve, and um, some some parts of our society have no respect. They just aren't respectful of the thoughts of others. And if I sound harsh, it's because I think I have been too kind, too respectful for too long. And I've taken it on the chin, and slowly but surely, the wedges get um, more entrenched, pronounced, yep. pronounced. and um, that's why we're in the pickle we're in now, because the, the decent people didn't fight back nearly soon enough. Amen. Absolutely. Because mm. you, you need to know, you know, you can't, if you keep squandering bits and a bit and an inch here and an inch here, yeah. they're going to ultimately come for a mile. 
it doesn't Absolutely. stop here. The left Absolutely. or the progressives, whatever you call them, they are never satisfied. You know that winds me up, don't you? you <laughs> yes, know I that. do. Yeah, when I need to get my when, own back. When, so. when, when the progressives were formed in 1890 <laughs> or thereabouts, um, I can never understand how they've had, what, 130 years of being allowed to to have that that name it just doesn't make sense it says that everything i hear about them is completely regressive i know i know i, I all right let's lighten the mood here what is tomorrow <laughs> tomorrow is uh halloween it seems that's what google tells me i i can't say that this is something i have been aware of growing up as a child mm -hmm. in india but but bear with me there's a there's a method to my madness here to, you know halloween celebrations and whatnot going on and kids over uh overdosing on candy, if I could use that phrase. But it seems some organizations thought Halloween is the right time to launch into, a, what should I call it, a campaign, a propaganda on the dangers of methane, because they said there's no bigger horror story than this. So have a listen to this campaign. Home, the one place you're supposed to be safe. But what if the danger is coming from inside the house? Natural gas is methane gas. Methane gas, an invisible evil that lurks, leaks, suffocates. How do you fight something you can't even see? <coughs> from the creators of Release the Fracken comes the horrifying truth about methane gas. Because what you don't know can hurt you. Stop the horrors of methane gas. Switch to electric. <laughs> You gotta laugh at this. You do have to laugh. It's 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 a, a great ad if you're um, in the electricity business. I know, I know, and is I mean, I can't even believe I just watched that. This is what it's come to, and I hope most people at this point, after what we've lived through the last three years, can recognize propaganda now when they see it, they hear it, they are preached to, as I would right. say. But this whole thing going on about how dangerous the air quality around us. It's it's made its way to Invercargill as well, hasn't it, Don? You were well, it, it, reading it, it, something, it, quoting something to me. Look, and that's fine that people want to have good air quality around them. But um, today I read an article that's talked about how all oh, the air quality, um, the particulate, mat particulate matter moves from north to south in the night. And it sort of it, it, it deposits itself more towards the south of Invercargill and how bad that is. Well, yeah, that could be where the, I think they call it the air shed sort of pressures are. Anyway, they, they talked about how some of the bad particulate matter is coming through your floorboards, through your walls, and through <laughs> your doors. In the dark of night, it's sneaking in and creating problems. I mean, I just I just despair at this stuff. It's it, As I said, it's fine that you should have decent uh, air around you, um, but... Yeah, I, I dare say someone's looking for more insulation um, funding or something like that for their houses of, of South and Chicago. And, and, you know, having been in the industry, we have given thousands of um, dollars and 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 um, insulated hundreds or thousands of houses in that area. So I don't know. People have probably got their hand out. But going back to that um, methane story, um, listeners wouldn't have obviously seen that was a video uh, and it was a house blowing apart with the methane gas. I am surprised they didn't have a New Zealand uh, uh, ad the same that had a cow blowing to bits because of the methane gas that had just gone boom inside it. 
I've been there yeah. now, correlating methane to everything, asthma, childhood diseases. Yeah. So yeah. my kids have spent most of their formative years in a cow shed. Yes. At this point, I should be worried about their oh, health, shouldn't I? Yeah, Absolutely. Oh, clearly, I've had 66 years around ruminant animals. I should be close to terminal, probably. Uh, but the issue is, uh, and I, I have to correct so many farmers now, because they all talk about the carbon cycle and the methane cycle. And blah. yeah, they keep it inside the farm gate. Methane from what we know now, and yo, know, I'm quite willing to have this challenged, but what we know now, and this program has uh, has exposed it many times, methane from any source is irrelevant in the scheme of things in terms of warming potential for the world. Doesn't matter its source. Cow. I, mean, I would have thought that's basic chemistry, Don. CH4, one mm. carbon, four hydrogen molecules, regardless mm. of where they come from. When exposed to air, yeah. they should be behaving yeah. the same way. But suddenly yeah. ruminant methane is the problem. Yeah, no, yeah, but and see, my point is, until we learned that um, all methane doesn't matter its source is not a problem to the world in terms of warming, uh, we have allowed ourselves to be vilified. I think the way for New Zealand farming to get off the hook is to get countries that use a lot of natural gas, a lot of methane gas, to join hands and sort of say nothing to see here. Hey, and you're missing a point here, Don. We're talking about ruminant methane. This particular uh, video was showing an urban household dealing yes. with methane. Yes. So if you think you're going to be allowed your barbecues for, for, you know, for much longer, you got another thing coming, especially if you live in the only C40 city in New Zealand, Auckland. Yep. Yeah. They're coming but after you. They are coming after you, 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 whether you like it or not. And it's, it's, it's how they begun everything. The United Nations website says, 96% of New Zealand's water is clean and drinkable because it's ranked its countries. But our country says we need to spend billions because, you know, it is not safe enough. It's the same thing that will happen about particulate matter and air quality. Once they start going about safety in something, I start seeing dollar signs and the whole compliance regime going on. But mm. I think we, we should move on. I have taken on the grumpy chair today. Dawn is more chirpy and upbeat. Uh Here's a brief prelim to our next guest. We have on today Julianne Romanello from the US. She's an ex-professor, and uh, some of you might have seen her absolutely copious Facebook uh, output. Julianne puts a lot of research into her work. And over the past several years, her Facebook profile says that she says, I've spoken and posted on a variety of research topics, the degradation of educational systems, weather systems, manipulation, social impact finance, propaganda techniques, dissolution of nation states, transportation, digital finance, philanthropy, ESD measures, e-citizenship, and so on. So pretty much everything that I, Dawn, Jill, and quite a few others have been speaking about. So I am thrilled that we've been able to get her on. Julian has been traveling, uh, touring the U.S., taking a talk to various cities. And it's, it's taken me six months to get some time from her. So once we come back from the short break, please have a listen. And uh, we'll, we'll be joined by Julian Romanello. Thank you so much for joining Don and me this morning. Our number is 2057 or email us at inbox at the rate reality check dot radio. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. 
Welcome back to Greenwash. You're with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host, Tom Nicholson. And before we introduce our guest today, it is worth uh, pondering about what we are seeing all around us in the news. We have a cycle lane here, some sort of smart sensors going on elsewhere, cameras for a safety being put elsewhere, planter boxes, rainbow stripes, the list goes on and on. We have a very benevolent government and allied authorities who are trying to make cities sustainable, streets for children, and all of those inclusive, equitable, have I missed any of the buzzwords yet, Don? Sustainable, the works. The works. Yeah, the works. That will probably have to do for it. And we've often had people, you know, come to us and ask us, what's going on with the smart cities? Why is this being changed? And the speed at which the changes are coming. When we know that going by the forecast by the different global agencies, be it the IMF or the World Bank, we are pretty much teetering towards the bottom of the pile in terms of projected GDP growth. Yet, New Zealand, a small country of 5 million, seems to have endless billions to spend on all of this rejigging. So, I am very excited today to have someone from the US who Don and I have been trying to get on for a while to come and talk to us on Greenwash. And I thought it's only fair that since we've, you know, recently our ex-Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has gone to Harvard for yet another fellowship, it's in a US academic to talk to New Zealand about what's going on. So a very warm welcome to Julianne Romanello, a wife. Uh, your doctorate, I believe, Julianne, is in a political uh, philosophy, really ancient political philosophy. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you find yourself going around and talking about what you've you've seen happening in the US. And as you and I have corresponded over the last few weeks, it's eerie how identical everything seems to be. Yes, it is. And, you know, it shouldn't take a PhD or any university degree to to be able to perceive that there's something very wrong mm. with, as you mentioned, the, the cameras that are going up, the emphasis on sustainability and, uh, you know, just wild spending by our governments. So that should be, I, I would think, common sense. Something else that I think that that should be pretty evident to, you know, just the person on the street, even children, is the repetition of these buzzwords, just like you mentioned. So, you know, never in my life would I have imagined that I would be, you know, taking trips to little towns in Oklahoma, um, the state where I live, and and talking about the new world order. If you had told me that five years ago, I would have looked at you and said, you must be crazy. This is not a thing. Surely no one would do that. Um, but, you know, I had a sort of concrete experience at a university that was restructured and that started the questioning process. And, and it was a particularly uh, brutal event. So I wanted to understand it. And one of the things that stuck out to me uh, was the repetition of these phrases like sustainability, resilience. I have a list of, oh, several hundred of them. Yeah. So now, yeah, that's what I do. I have sort of left the books behind, although they were very helpful to me. And I think understanding 
the use of symbolism, um, the way that narrative is important to this, and maybe we'll talk about narrative and especially yeah. how it's used in New Zealand. Um, but here I am, you know, once you see it and the evidence is very clear, you don't, I don't use the dark web. I look at corporate white papers and, and documents uh, from corporations and think tanks and the plans, they, they are written in such a way that, you know, if you're not a careful reader, then you might be fooled. But after you've read enough of them, you should notice that there is repetition, there's the use of a template, and it's going on everywhere. So that in and of itself, I think, should cause people to question. And maybe that was, you know, some of my, you know, academic uh, influences that, that really made me look in that way. But I try to to encourage others to do the same thing. And if your listeners look at those uh, repetitions, they, I think, will just be floored at um, how clear the agenda is. Julianne, you refer to this especially uh, brutal transition when you were uh, teaching at Tulsa University. And from somebody who was studying or teaching ancient Greek political thought to this today, could you could you give us a bit of a sense about what happened in your university that got you out here? Yeah, so it's the University of Tulsa, which is a small private liberal arts university with professional schools, so law, uh, engineering, uh, and it, it was probably the best university in my state. And mm -hmm. I, you know, they had a wonderful honors program and you know, the students were excellent. They wanted to be there. There were the kinds of of eager young minds who also did the work and they they actually wanted to learn. So they enjoyed doing it. They weren't chasing a grade. It was just a beautiful program. We did Western Civ. And all of a sudden, I mean, there was a sort of tension on the campus anyway, but, you know, we've been living in strange times since, you know, for a couple of decades, right? So, that was unremarkable in and of itself, but the faculty, so about 500 faculty members were summoned to an auditorium at a performing arts hall. I mean, I couldn't make this up. <laughs> <laughs> and they were told by the board, uh, the chairman of the board of the university, that the university would need to pivot. It would need to reimagine itself. Uh, to meet the needs of first-generation college students and prepare them for the workforce. So I'm sure that you're hearing the same thing in your educational systems. And so the 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 individual who came out and presented this to the faculty, who were all in shock. I mean, imagine a room of 500 faculty members just watching this a person on stage who used the phrase, we are, he's referring to the board, rowing in unison. And we must all be rowing in unison. It's another phrase that they use over and over again. But as, you know, I hadn't been paying attention to this corporate garbage because I'd been reading old books, right? You know? Uh, so it just, I thought, this looks like, and I hope, you know, they're, they, you'll just take this um analogy at face value. I thought this seems like like a Nazi rally, you know? Um, 
you're you're summoned, you're told what the agenda is. It was going to slash the liberal arts. It was going to transform the way that degrees were earned. And, you know, it had been a secretive process in which this new plan was developed. And it was using all of this Orwellian doublespeak. Like the, the program itself was called True Commitment. So I couldn't believe that other faculty members didn't stand up and boo, you know, if any time were a time for booing, but they sat there amazed. And, you know, I, uh, my dissertation, my, my primary area of research is the work of Eric Vogelin, who was a 20th century political philosopher and brilliant. And he had, I had actually just written an essay on his essay entitled On Classical Studies. And he talks about the, uh, the the deculturation of the West and how we have lost our ability to understand the very concept of reason itself. You know, you'll people will think about it in terms of just cause and effect or rationality or in a mechanistic way. Um, and Vogelin looks at the dangers of that. And in this essay, he mentions, you know, he, he has a line. I wish I could remember it exactly, but he says. You know, the danger of losing reason to this degree and butchering our language is that you can end up with the grotesqueness of the situation at like at Auschwitz. So that's one reason why, you know, when I saw this event unfolding and I'd been writing this essay and and Vogelin had fled Germany, he was not Jewish, but he uh, opposed Hitler and, and any kind of racial ideology. Um, I, I just was, I could not believe that the faculty took it. And I was sort of visiting, I was a visiting faculty member and I didn't want my dean to, you know, to suffer any consequences for my unruly behavior. So I told everyone around me, are you listening to this? This is just like what Vogelin writes about. This is like what every person who has commented on World War II and all of these other you know, terrible, dark moments in human history have been talking about and we're living through it. And all of these academics are clueless. Sorry, that so, was probably more than what you wanted to hear. Well, but No, that's fine. I mean, that's it's a great start. And I mean, I'm uh, I'm very much a lay person. I had no reading of history and no reading of philosophy. Uh, but clearly the world has been full of influences uh, over its time. And the influences that have come to the fore um, have clearly managed to uh, have their their art crafted in such a way it's now being presented. Now, the one that just got me, the line that gets me, is the long march through the institutions. Now, I would have thought everyone in a university would have understood what Marx and, and Gramsci and co. were on about. Uh, clearly, clearly, they are sort of oblivious to it, or is that what you're trying to wake them up to? Yeah, I mean, you know, well, what I tried to wake faculty members up to, at first I just was the plan for our university. And it didn't take me long to figure out, okay, this university is being basically taken over, a corporate takeover by big philanthropists, a, a billionaire in town in our chamber of commerce, and they're going to use it to create a workforce. So instead of giving the the you know, young people and, and 
older people, I mean, you know, you can have all ages, uh, the conversations that could help them to determine what's real, what's not real, what they want to do with their lives, to understand the sciences. Um, you know, the, instead, the university was going to be creating assembly line parts for a workforce that had already been predetermined. And and that is a Marxist model, you know. Um, so I tried to show concretely, here's how TU, that what we call the university, you know, here's how TU will be affected. And you're probably going to lose your job because they're looking to replace all professors with robots or programs, you know. Um, and so, oh, your digital credential, uh, you know, requirements for now, now I can't remember the name of the system, but, you know, you would have to upload your CV and, and enter in all of these credentials. And, and it's the the software is mining that for the most effective syllabi so that the syllabi can just be delivered without any human interaction whatsoever, except through a screen. So I tried to appeal to their self-interest and their institutional interest, let, let, you know, never mind the larger philosophical questions of should a university be doing what we're doing? And then, oh, here is the larger, much larger program uh, about really, you know, harvesting human data and, you know, learning how to control behavioral psychology in order to make a profit off of social engineering. You know, we didn't even get there because they said, oh, Julianne, you, you know, they would never do that. I said, look at all of these white papers look at these agreements with our city council it's all here uh, julian you're a right-wing nut job you know i was like huh. i'm not not <laughs> an academic i thought oh yeah it was just so you know and then when you see people who resort to that kind of ad hominem criticism you know you know that you're dealing with someone who doesn't really want to understand they've got some kind of a defense yeah now julian your website are it is, it is your website, as well as a similarly named YouTube channel, Hearts Over Hexagons. Mm -hmm. And I've been seeing your videos as you've done a bit of traveling in the US in these last few months. And that's why you've been hard to pin down, because Don and I have been <laughs> wanting to speak with you for a while. So give us a sense of what you've been talking about and what sort of uh, developments are people facing out there in the US. And after that, we can move on to New Zealand and see how we compare. Yeah. So, you know, because I started looking at what was happening it, to a university in our city, it led me to the the billionaire. And I usually pick on one, but there are several. There's a whole cartel of them who are local. I mean, they live here. They have their names all over the building. So this is not someone that lives in Davos and is, you know, just mm -hmm investing in us like this is a resident who is a scene out in public um because i came up into this new work doing that you know people here in tulsa where i am and in the whole state because our our billionaire george kaiser is his name he has a huge influence in the state they were they wanted to know what he was doing and how it would affect them you know, so it, so people started asking me to come talk to their groups, really because they knew they knew that something was going on that was 
it was awry and they wanted to understand it. This is like just in many different areas in our in our social civic life. You know, you would see public-private partnerships that couldn't, you never knew who was in charge because there were layers and layers of public-private partnerships. I often say, I think it's for money laundering. Uh, yeah. But, you know, so people wanted to understand, well, how George Kaiser is funding all of this. He's funding all of that. Oh, well, we're getting these partnerships. So, uh, so I had answers about George Kaiser and I wasn't afraid to, you know, say the truth about him, which everyone else seems to be still. Uh, and what I was able to figure out about impact investing, uh, I found a, a really great source on that uh, who helped me understand it. Um, Allison McDowell is her name, so I just want to give her credit for that. You know, I was able to explain this new economy and the social transformation that was going on with the billionaire. And of course, that led to people wanting to know about smart cities and, and you know, the surveillance, the uh, the infrastructure for tracking impact for these new financial mechanisms. And, you know, once people started hearing how awful it is and the depth of of influence that's here, you know, then everybody wanted a piece of it. And, you know, yeah. and I, I'm always a curious person. So, you know, I'll go look into things like, oh, you know, here's how they're tracking beef. Um, you know, so we have lots of farmers and ranchers here who've been very concerned about beef databases coming through the USDA. So I'd go look at that and I can always relate it back to this new economic model that's based on surveillance. So now I, I probably turned down, I would say, 80% of the invitations that I get to speak just because I, I've got four kids and I can't, I just can't manage it. But people everywhere, in every little tiny town, in every rural area in the United States, the freest country in the world, we're setting up uh you know, traffic access points, smart buildings, road resurfacing, water management uh, systems. We're tracking and tracing everything. We have more cameras per capita than China. So, wow. you know, so people hear it. I think they haven't, they have a sense that something's wrong and that it's going in this direction, but they are really shocked and sometimes paralyzed once they hear the full scope. So what is the full scope? What is that? What is the big threat? I mean, see, that's I, I've got an issue with uh, in, in our local city. We're spending was supposed to be eight hundred thousand on CCTV for criminal behaviour, bad behaviour downtown, but it's now up to two point four million. Um, that's just how councils work, it seems. Uh, but you know, that it seems it, to me that if you had the right. Uh, right ways of living in your own society you wouldn't need a camera at all you wouldn't need any if you if you educated people about property rights and the understanding that um what you own is yours and you shouldn't never, never desecrate the property of others you shouldn't have this criminal behavior downtown and you shouldn't have to do surveillance so what is the surveillance all about really what is it going to be about i mean really it's about making money off of tracking esg outcomes you know, so environmental social governance outcomes. So that is basically the sustainable development uh, global goals in corporate terms, right? 
So these metrics, which are developed by Davos and, uh, you know, all of the think tanks and academics and the world bankers who, who contribute to those, they have picked these different metrics that are going to indicate how healthy of a society we are, right? And they these because we have the technology to track continuous improvement you can speculate on the financial markets about the the projected outcomes outcomes. so yes so you know as i was listening to you know i made it through a a couple of the uh the videos on the digital from the digital twin playlist that you sent me um jasper and you know the the woman who is selling this digital twinning uh, program, she says, oh, this it, she makes it sound so great. It's all about outcomes. It's all about outcomes. We just want people to be happy and resilient and prosperous and, you know, same buzzwords. <laughs> well, those outcomes will be, uh, you know, the the securities for financial speculators. They're going to come up with different investments that are supposed to create an impact. So progress toward those goals. Uh, And all of the the surveillance helps to track the concrete progress um, that people are making or not. And it, you know, we should note, you know, I like to use the analogy, you know, the 2008 uh, economic crisis. So here mm-hmm. in the U.S. with our mortgage-backed securities, you know, you had Wall Street bankers betting against the American people's ability to pay their mortgages, and and they were making bets against the, uh, you know, financial outlooks of large institutional investors, right? So they could make money what if you know, as long as they were able to project the right direction of the change, you know, if you're mm-hmm. tanking or if you are actually, you know, moving towards solvency and, and a sound financial system. So think of the global goals as, you know, the ability to pay back mortgages and the stability of a financial system. And then think of impact investors as, a, a group of people who are speculating on whether or not we're going to make those targets. And because it has to do with human behavior, you have to have a, instead of numbers and just money flowing here and there that could be quantified easily, you have to have all of the surveillance. You have to have a digital ID so that every person, every object, every service can be tracked, traced, and somehow linked to these goals and it really is a program to measure manage and monetize all aspects of life it's quite an excess isn't it the united nations sdgs the world economic forum then it comes down to our local governments our own governments who we thought were going to be working for the benefit of their country then we have these stakeholders and corporates and it's it's quite a few tentacles, and I I don't blame the ordinary person for just about giving up. In fact, you know, giving up a wish, losing the will to live because it is so dark, so deep, and all pervasive, absolutely all pervasive, regardless of whether you are in the U.S. or where we are in New Zealand. 
uh, listeners, we are speaking to Julia and Romanello this morning on Greenwashed. And if you want to text us a question or a comment, please do so on 2057 or email us at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Before we go more into it, I'd like to read out a couple of uh, snippets that have come across me over this last weekend. The first was that the Auckland Transport is installing pedestrian crossings every few hundred meters on North Road. So what AT Auckland Transport has done is over, I think, about 900 meters. They've installed three pedestrian crossings, which I would say is an overkill by any stretch of imagination. Likewise, this is a screen grab I'm reading out from a Wellington chat page, which says, let us not get Wellington moving. They've now, I presume this is a council or the government or NZTA, they've now put posts up outside Rangutai College, so there's zero parking to pick up students. Also, a fire truck had lights and sirens on going past in the afternoon, and no one could pull over from the traffic as there was no one to pull over, no place to pull over because of the bike lanes and posts and so on. Who thought this up? Now, I have an answer for this. I know exactly who thought this up. The entire surveillance state that is gunning for all of this, 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 and they have the cheek, Julian, to call this transit-oriented development, whereas we are not transiting anywhere. We seem to be stuck in limbo. So what's going on here? Well, I mean, the ultimate goal is to lock you down, to make it so inconvenient to go anywhere and so expensive to go anywhere mm -hmm. that you'll be you know, resigned to doing all of, to to living 100% of your life in a live, work, play unit. And you've probably seen that phrase, live, work, play. I came across it, I think, in, you know, some of the documents maybe that I sent to you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are these huge uh, stack and pack multi-family uh you know, housing developments that are usually packed into city centers, but they're going in rural areas too. And they are made to be self-sufficient units that you never have to leave. And it's marketed as convenience, right? But it is, there is, it's a dual purpose technology, we might say, to keep you locked up there. So the transit-oriented development is, you know, I came across that phrase and trying to understand my city's smart city plan, which here was, you know, it, it's sometimes hard to find a comprehensive plan that says smart city plan on it. And, hmm. uh, you know, a lot of them say comprehensive plan, vision plan, innovation plan, something like this. But I wanted one that said smart city plan. And it just so happened that this was a uh, transportation plan that was filed with the U.S. Department of Transportation. So I started looking at this and uh, came across the phrase transit-oriented development, which you can put into Google, and it's going to mm. tell you. This is the way to set up a 15-minute city that you never have to leave. And, you know, we have to understand that our resetters, as I like to call them, they don't stop at a 15-minute city, you know. Um, they're going to keep inching those boundaries in until to, until you're in that live, work, play compound and it's too expensive for you to leave. You know, it's unsafe. Um, you know, you don't have enough social credit points. So you're just going to stay in this large 
high-density urban development and put on your VR goggles when you're miserable in your, you know, 800-square-foot <laughs> coop, right? That's the goal. And they do do it through transportation by making it difficult for people to travel and creating problems like congestion that then they have to fix and waste your money doing it. Yeah. And so if you were just playing a devil's advocate for a moment, if you were to redesign a city from ground zero right now, I know there's one uh, happening apparently in uh, Saudi Arabia, but if you were doing it from ground zero today, uh, wouldn't you want to be uh, condensing people into an area uh, like a ghetto um, and um, ghettoizing people? If you were, if you were the power brokers of the world, wouldn't you want to do that? Even if you were starting from the most technologically advanced opportunity and design of in the world, that's what you'd do, surely. Yeah, I think so. You know, I mean, they don't want us around. They want to control us. And it's easier to do that if we're poor, resourceless, and we never have conversations beyond our own zone, you know. And then there's another aspect to it, which is that the, the you know, the money-making mechanism behind the new international economic order is, you know, this social engineering program. So making money off of behavior change. And our resetters love to test different strategies to see how human motivation works, what people can tolerate, when they're going to go berserk and become so unstable that they might you know, be a useful tool in the next, uh, you know, major false flag event that we have, right? So you can get that, that sophisticated and precise behavioral data when you have people controlled into, in small environments with, you know, uh, just the right mix of different demographic information, different economic opportunities. And, you know, when they're controlled in every way, you can glean that data and learn how they're going to respond to different events. We, I just had, uh, you know, read out the screen grab uh, from Wellington. It's one of its chat pages. Now, Wellington is our capital, Julian, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. uh, the government offices, everything else is there. It's, I call it the bureaucrat city. Auckland is our largest city, 1.7 million, so a third of New Zealand lives there. Wellington is currently spearheading a $7.5 billion program that they call Let's Get Wellington Moving. The mayor has gone to the Bloomberg uh, city center, city center, they call it Bloomberg Center for Cities, and mm -hmm. under it runs a Bloomberg lab, city lab in Harvard followed by the chief of staff, also, I think, followed by the CEO. But all of this was preceded last year by Wellington win winning a global prize for innovation and $1 million US in prize money uh, by winning the Bloomberg Mural Challenge. And it, it did that. It's award-winning project for which Wellington actually got $1 million American dollars for us that would translate to about 1.5, I would say, about down million New Zealand. The project was the Wellington Digital Twin City, a virtual representation of the systems and things that make up the city, a 3D model, it says, brought to life through real-time data from sensors and processors 
to help understand and make better decision about how Wellington grows. And then the then Mayor Andy Foster was delighted that we, we were one of the first 15 cities to win this award. Now, sounds pretty good. That's a global philanthropy head, uh, Michael Bloomberg, giving us uh, $1.5 million to the Wellington Council and now very conveniently footing the bill for people in Wellington local government to go to his center for cities. But what is, if you would like to elaborate, what is a digital twin city? We seem to hear it so often. And the best I you know, knew of twin cities, we used to have sister city programs in New Zealand. Yeah. So you might have a mayor from one city, say, going to Japan or China. That was real time. What is this digital twin business? Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just fuming because Michael Bloomberg, I would say he is my nemesis. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, the billionaire that I mentioned that's here in Tulsa, well, he and Michael Bloomberg are investment partners, right? And our mayor schmoozes with Michael Bloomberg all the time. And Michael Bloomberg is, in my humble opinion, m much more dangerous than Bill Gates because he goes under the radar. Let me, so... Let me see if I can link these two things very easily. And you can tell I'm getting fired up about it because, you know, Bloomberg is, I think, the seventh richest man on the Forbes international list of mm -hmm. wealthy people. He made his money in media uh, and uh, data analytics and market insights. So this is a guy who made billions, and I'm not even going to speculate if that is where his money actually came from or not, but on tracking and tracing behavior and predicting outcomes so that he could do what, you know, get an edge in the financial markets. So this is exactly what, what the new economy is about. Bloomberg made his fortune in it, and it runs off of the surveillance. So the digital twin uh, is an online or, you know, it's a web-based copy of your life, of any object's life. Uh, it could be a city's life where everything is replicated in the cloud, not even on a server someplace, but in this nebulous world. And... You know, I have a friend in Australia, Cindy Niles, if you don't, if you're not from, I'm yep. sure you two are friends. She, I just recommend everything that she writes. You know, she came up with this very important distinction about the, the difference between Web3 and, you know, our current internet. And, and she said, you know, Web3 will not be optional. You're good. So, so where the digital twin e exists and how it operates is going to be forced upon us. So you will have to enter into this digital world, so to speak. Uh, you know, you're going to have to use technology. You're going to have to grant your biometric data to prove who you are so that you can access the software, the app that lets you in the door um, to some place. All of this is going to be conducted in the cyber physical world and, and human beings are really going to have no choice but to engage it. Whereas now we can turn off a computer, you can pay bills with a check 
in the through the mail. You know, for the most part, people can still do this. Uh, but once the the digital twin is fully set up, you will have no choice about having to interact with it like it's a real person. And all of those interactions are going to be generating more behavioral analytics data for, you know, for really evil people like Michael Bloomberg. And I, and I use that word deliberately because he, I think he is sneaky. He is, uh, you know, one of the founder, he's the founder of C40 Cities, which is a huge smart cities yeah. initiative. And this guy has his tentacles in New Zealand, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in every little city. And he does the same thing. You flatter the local counselors with grants and with, you know, uh, participation in conferences that's going to look like, uh, you know, a something on their CV, their CV. resume, you know, that that sets them above everybody else. Oh, I got to go to a Bloomberg uh, conference in the States, maybe at Harvard. Well, let me tell you, I mean, Harvard is a cesspool. It's totally owned by these think tanks. Yeah, <laughs> so I, that, I that's great. Then that, that, uh, so it's, it's really good you called it a cesspool because that's where our ex-prime yeah. minister Jacinda Ardern is. And you know, people do get flattered. I Dawn and I had listened to uh, this recording from another bigger city of ours, Christchurch, and their mayor going on about one afternoon session, telling everyone there's going to be tea break soon. But before that, she, she, she's speaking to the rest, everyone else in the room, the council, saying that I have got an amazing news. I've got an invite from to a very select club. I got called by Michael Bloomberg. So you know, this is this is not new, and that. It is amazing. Uh, I wouldn't have thought we would have something in common with Tulsa, but there you are, the same Michael Bloomberg, the, the same, same faces. So you can tell your, you know, your, your um, excited, you know, <laughs> counselor there. No, it you're is just the same as every local counselor in Podunkville, backwoods, Oklahoma, USA. You know, yeah. no one knows who we are. They're getting the same invites that you are. It is not a big deal. It's a dime a dozen. This guy is, you know, worth something like, mm. I don't know, almost it's, he's, cl it's close to a trillion dollars. I think it's his. Gosh. Gosh. Well, and he's using council as, as uh, councils as drones, uh, to be cloned um it just doesn't seem right does it where's the individuality i mean i want my city and my surroundings to be sort of have an individual side to them you know something that's unique for for the area and the country why would we want to all be managed and mind managed by by others i don't get it nobody wants this but the thing is people are i mean to be you know to give human beings the benefit of the doubt I think people are busy, you know, we're stressed out because we live an, in an upside down fake world, <laughs> you know, yeah. we, you know, I didn't know how to farm. I've tried to grow some pumpkins. They were beautiful. And then the bugs came, you know, yeah. so I, I actually grew two really beautiful gray blue pumpkins and then the bugs just ate everything. So when you mentioned that in New Zealand, uh, you know, your farmers don't have subsidies. I think, you know, farming is so difficult. I, I can't keep the bugs off of my pumpkins, you know, but at 42 years old, I am just 
you know, for about four years, I'm just getting in touch with dirt and seeds and produce from my own backyard. So yeah. we, so, so I think people are so upside down and, sh and stressed out and we live. And, yeah, disengaged and from reality. Disen totally disengaged from reality. This changes of the seasons and I'm not being, you know, an earth worshiper here, but just doing regular things that people have always done that keep us grounded with each other, with the world that we live in, with God. Um, we're not there. So no one knows what these new initiatives mean. They just know that they're, that they have this angst and they want something that's going to alleviate that angst. And they think that a better city plan with a revitalized downtown, with more arts opportunities, with active transportation and livable, walkable. Oh God, there's the buzzwords. Yep. Yeah, revitalize all of these words. How, how many times have we heard them everywhere? But I, I often think, Julian, for a country of 5 million, you know, the U.S. is big. I, are you about 350 million? I'd say give or take something. Yeah. I mean, I can't I thought it was closer to 33, but. Okay. Now you'd be more precise. I just well, rounded it off in my it's head. Well, it's, it's grown a lot in the last 12 months, hasn't it? Um, Over the border. <laughs> but, you know, when but your we, are wide open. Yeah. But we, for a country of 5 million, we have a lot of world first, a lot of feathers to our cap. We are the first country in the world to have all 78 councils and unitary bodies sign up to the Smart Cities uh, plan. Again, most people have no idea. A NGO or, you know, a subsidiary organization working signed us up to it. We are the first country in the world that has decided it is going to have real-time emissions data of every city and town worth its salt. Every Everything that's on the map, we are going to have it. We are also... I mean, you and I, we were watching those uh, lectures, uh, the presentations on Smart Cities Australia and New Zealand, talking about digital twins and talking about smart benches and the real-time data tracking. The surveillance state here is absolutely, absolutely out of control. And one would think there's no better Petri dish for all of these uh, globalist agendas than New Zealand. Right. Because, you know, just like we were talking about the 15 minute cities and wanting to close the walls in and to establish control populations so that you can test different interventions of, mm. you know, behavioral interventions. I mean, your New Zealand is a ready made uh, control dish right there. You know, so you, on one hand, you're the Petri, you know, you're the Petri dish. Um, you're also a, a sort of control dish because there, I would, I, I don't know what your um, migration is. I think I remember reading that that's a goal is to bring more people into the country to fill your workforce needs. And, and they're and also it, saying oh, we will have climate refugees, millions of them. This was in a UN conference that happened at, Two weeks ago, we had an ex-Reserve Bank governor of New Zealand stating this, that New Zealand needs to be ready. He probably meant not just New Zealand, also Australia and, you know, all of us yeah. out here in the South Pacific. But he said millions of climate refugees. So, yeah. See, now, that makes no sense because how are they going to get to New Zealand? 
I mean, we mm. might sink ourselves, Don. Hey, the sea <laughs> levels are rising. And this, I, I think we're in defense. And, you know, in corporate strategy, I guess that's one way to defend yourself against a hostile takeover. It's called uh-huh. Pac-Man defense, you know, where you um, you eat them. No, a poison pill. That's the one I'm thinking of where you uh-huh. say. Mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah, so there's going to, I think, I was reading about, this was really shocking. Uh, you know, New Zealand, as part of your your global sustainability program, I was really surprised to see how much emphasis there is on the social aspect of it. So, you know, um, it was all about making people feel welcome and wanting, I'll, I'll find it for you and send you the link, but it, the way I read it, they want to bring in uh, diverse peoples because it, diversity is just good and New Zealand will be a, a better, better place for it place mm. if you bring in a whole bunch of people who have a totally different culture and don't know the area and are going to be dumped you know yeah. on this island state and then you know it's going to be better for everyone we're all going to miraculously be happy well that's not how human beings work you know no. i mean we like to have conversations with people who have different views and experiences with us but you know, this sort of forced, forced integration is, I mean, I think it it's cruel to both populations because, you know, you have a way of life sort of developed. You have infrastructure that can support maybe, you know, uh, the people that you have on uh, in the country right now. You know, these these targets to bring in people are designed to make your infrastructure look obsolete so that you can build it back better and smarter. Um, You know, and it it looks to me that really New Zealand is you're at the center of this because you can't leave because this, the population is small relative to other countries. Although, you say five million? I mean, that seems pretty large for your air for the the land area. Well, if I can just no, it's it's not that huge relatively. We're we've got one hundred and four thousand square miles as a as a country, and the Netherlands is um, tiny in comparison with us. Um, when you analyze it, the Netherlands has got seventeen million people. But from two thousand and three, here's a statistic: the then minister for the environment was um, I think we had about four million people, but she said in her report. Uh, we will have 4.4 million by 2021 and 4.6 million by 2050. While we're at 5.1, I dare say, billion, uh, million today. So we're way, way above the uh, expectation of 15, 18 years ago. And it just shows you as a percentage, we have grown massively compared to many other countries in the world relative to where we were. And of course, that has stimulated all manner of uh, investments, especially into housing. And spe- yeah, and speculation. Of course, our infrastructure hasn't been keeping up as well, but the quality of our spend on infrastructure has been pretty pretty average as well. So, I mean, things change, and so the bit for me in all of this equation, um, Julian, is I'm not against the evolution of ideas and and the good things that come out of that. The bad stuff drifts away. It's when you get overreached by um, by people that uh, are using and exerting power that is 
unfettered um, and that the regulatory systems aren't there to control them. And I don't have any feeling we're going to have any governance structures that are going to put the regulatory uh, restrictions on these things that we're, we're talking about today. I mean, I remember as a kid in the 60s looking at the Jetsons and sci-fi stuff, and I'm, I hate sci-fi. I can't stand it. Uh, but but I did have to suffer that as a kid watching early television. Um, never thought much of it. Uh, but it's there's elements of truth coming out now that these all uh, powerful people want to be more powerful than others. And, and the middle class is under massive threat. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah, they want to decimate the middle classes. I have a mm. screenshot from mm. book, The Workplace of the Future, and it talks about the fourth industrial revolution is going to decimate the middle classes, knowledge workers. You know, so, you know, um, all of the people who work in the corporations, their jobs can be outsourced to, uh, you know, a program uh, that can control things without bias, that can achieve just the right mix of, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion in every decision. It can optimize efficiency. And so what are you going to do with all of these, you know, uh, jobless, middle-class um, people? You're going to reskill them and you're going to make money reskilling them for the new future of work. And that was a big deal in your plan. Uh, your the New Zealand plan was, you know, to prepare people for the future of work. And I think, I mean, that who decided that future? Who decided that future? Right. We have these massive polytechnics all being amalgamated, absolutely shoddy spending already down in the red in the first year of its, uh, you know, because they took away all the smaller polytechnics and they made one massive bureaucracy. In the first year, it's in the red already. And the apprentices, uh, Don, did you see that uh, comment in the NZ Herald? People are saying, the apprentices are saying the training is absolutely shoddy. But yet that is our future of work. And they they really don't care what's happening. No, they don't. Oh, mm -hmm. and, and another thing that may shock you, and it's happened in the last three years, uh, Julian, is we now have a separate Maori uh, health authority. So we have, we have um, divided the country in two with a a, yeah, a separate system for Maori, which makes no sense in a uh, in a um, modern society. I wouldn't have thought, but there you go. But I yeah. I play the devil's advocate here, Julian. What they are saying is they're very openly stating that New Zealand's demographic is going to change, and say in another 15, 10, 15 years, there's going to be more than a doubling of the population that identify as Maori or Indigenous or Pacifica. You know, from Pacific Islands. But that is going to happen when you suddenly start saying, because people have mixed heritage. There is no two ways about it. People in New Zealand, unlike in many other places, there has been, uh, you know, living together for more than a century and a half, nearly two centuries. And there's been interbreeding, intermarriages, living together peacefully. Uh, mostly, there have been ugly times. But they are now saying university, suddenly we need a professor for this. Auckland Council is right now recruiting for a climate change advisor in Maori, a Maori climate change advisor. So even if you have a certain amount of ethnicity, if you identify as that and you land that job, well, you will, won't you? There's an incentive there to identify as a certain ethnicity because that takes you places. And all of this is going to see a huge shift. And then suddenly there's going to be, oh, suddenly, because uh, they say, 
the you know the european population is poised to decrease the maori population is poised to increase and migrants from people the average middle brown like me are also going to increase and all i see around me is cultural wars this is what i saw in india growing up as a small minority religion the politicians pitting us and this is what i see here now and i i would dare say maybe in the us with the unfettered migration you've had are you seeing similar things yeah i mean i i'm not seeing so much animosity between the new mm. immigrants uh and the population here i mean people are concerned about it because for the same reasons that that every other country who's experiencing these surges is concerned how do we deal with an influx of people who have no money they don't speak the language you know they they're in desperate situation anyway you know it's a technical challenge but but i have not seen so much just um of the the cultural war on that front where i uh-huh. see it happening is on um on issues of sexuality and oh. critical race theory, race theory you know with especially having to deal with um african americans and then they bring in latinos and and indigenous people. Yeah. So the so the immigrants aren't I mean it's concerning and maybe this is just my limited perspective but 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 what I see happening is a a battle in the schools especially over you know gay rights issues and how we talk about people's you know preferences um for a partner and then the the topic of of critical race theory and especially on these historic like lines of of historical fission which to me I think I have much more in common with a you know a black person of my same age same socioeconomic class as you know I have much more in common with them than someone of, of the ultra elite class in my own race right you know so yeah. i ter- tend to think that that we need to pay more attention to the economics of this rather than the sort of identity politics and to me i think that you have a lot of you know conservative freedom minded people here in the states who are so concerned with protecting kids in schools from cultural social indoctrination that they are absolutely blind to the economic ramifications being leveled out and the surveillance state so that's a long-winded answer to your question but i think yeah yeah it, the immigration is being used as a tool to you know force people to to heighten their sense of identity um and in that way not look at some of these larger programs and and the public's inability to control it even if they did see it even if they were paying attention because it is all outsourced this is something that i've tried to emphasize if i could just have another minute you know when i go give these talks to groups in in oklahoma and i could do it anywhere i did one in uh new south for new south wales australia over zoom and and the reason i can do that is because it's the same program same. everywhere right Templates. and i tried to explain look this is the end of representative government as we know it this is the end of 
popular sovereignty of any kind of oversight uh, as to finances, as to policy, law, the judicial system, we are losing all of that. Yeah. And it's going to be transferred to a corporate governance stakeholder model. And then eventually it's going to be delegated to the AI. And if you have ever tried to get through to a corporation to have customer service with anything. I know I just had to get a new phone yesterday and was waiting on the phone, you know, trying to get through. And they say, you're, there are five callers ahead of you and you want to throw the phone through something because it's so frustrating. That is what e-governance is going to look like. You know, when we outsource everything, first of all, to private actors and privatized government, but then we digitalize it. And that is, I think, a point of no return. I couldn't agree so, more to this one, Don. I'm sure you yeah, have and, on this. Well, and, and, you know, this has happened. I mean, the evolution of all this or the genesis of all this may have been hundreds of years ago, or at least 100 years ago, but the uh, technology that became available in the last 25 years has just made this gather speed apace. And I mean, I'll never forget the first night I met Jess Breed. She got humiliated by um, a politician who who basically said there's nothing to see in terms of the United Nations uh, and its influence in New Zealand, nothing to see here. Uh, and so we're told in every forum you'll ever go to in New Zealand, you're told that there's nothing binding about the United Nations um, edicts, nothing binding, even though it's through all our, our local councils, it's often mentioned in boardrooms uh it seems to be everywhere it's just not a it's nothing binding nothing to see here and yet the language that we started this whole interview uh with was around language you go right back to that the language of the un the wef is right in front of us and all of this stuff and yet we're told locally there's nothing to see nothing here to see here yeah completely it's it's, they, it's they lie they, i mean I think that there's some there are some people who are in local governments, regional governments, who really don't know because they've gone to the Bloomberg Institute and they have been probably literally brainwashed yeah. with these terms over and over and over again. The repetition of these terms that and and you know, Don, like you said, with the speed of technological advancement in the past three decades say, you know, that has allowed us, uh, or I should say it, it has allowed the powers that be that want to control all of us to totally restrict our, our horizon of wonder, of understanding, of, you know, historical appreciation of anything, you know, because what happens, we, you know, we've put children and you know ad and adults willingly choose to sit in front of the tv to use the phone to spend most of your day being fed this propaganda that can be transmitted with in real time at warp speed it can anticipate what you want that's you know the digital twin city is going to be able to recognize where you're going before you actually get there and then feed you the advertisements that will be most lucrative to the, you know, the, yeah. the people who want the profit, they can design that narrative so that people 
have, they just don't know what's going on. And I hear all the time. So, so I do think that there's some people that are clueless, but then there are those who flat out lie to you. And this happens, I say, it's also part of the template. If you have a public official in any capacity who scoffs at you for suggesting that, you know, the sustainability goals are operative in your area, then that person is probably in on it because it is inhumane and and it violates, I would think, the terms of the office to, you know, just dismiss a concerned citizen's inquiry without, you know, without even looking into it. So when you have scoffers, you know, who who say, oh, that's just nuts. And I've heard that many times. I, I asked about our city plan. I said, you know, to one city councilor, I said, does this plan prioritize active transportation over the, you know, possession of individual uh, vehicles, cars? Yeah. And he said, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and I couldn't believe he just lied. And this was in front of an audience. But you never have the time to retort and, you know, people no. move on. But they lie. And so if they do that, I think, you know, this should be a clue to thoughtful people who have a brain, who haven't, you know, been to all of Bloomberg's councils. If someone is dismissive like that, or, you know, calling you a, a conspiracy theorist, then buyer beware, they need to be censored now or else they're going yeah. to be a stakeholder. And it is this, I think, you know, coming to, drawing to a conclusion here, digital government, the, what you, you had mentioned that, Julian, that that's where it's coming to. And then that that is the end. If I simply just Google digital government New Zealand, it brings me up to a website, digital.govt.nz, which it says, is your guide to the information and tools to support the digital transformation across New Zealand government. It goes on to say, you know, different councils that are going on, but Smart Wellington, local government with NGOs, and we are working towards digitally transforming your world. If you look back further in it, it says that New Zealand, we are the initial uh, members of the DN, or digital network countries of the world. And would you believe we were a founding member of that? The original five who set up the DN network were Estonia, South Korea, UK, New Zealand, and you can possibly guess the last, Israel. So these five countries set up the DN network. We were a founding member of it, and nobody talks about it. The same website, if you look at it, talking about Smart Wellington, it says Digital Government New Zealand has the Smart Wellington program to uh, bring together government NGOs to turn Wellington into a smart city. Now, you can easily find a smart city everywhere. They never tell you where it is. And I think we need to appreciate the fact that we have reached a stage in the world, regardless of whether you're in Oklahoma or we are here or even my parents in India, governments. And this might be too much, you know, but this is what I think. Governments, be it regional, be it central, they are just placeholders. The power is now vested in these non-governmental organizations, busybodies, meddling, tinkering about our lives without any regard for individual wishes. 
people email me at council. You know, I'm, I'm a sitting councillor right now. Long may it last or not. I don't know. But uh, have people email me. What do you know about smart cities? And what do you know about this? And what have you signed up to? Uh, I often have responded to a few people. I said, uh, you know, if others tell you they don't know, they are not lying. They're perfectly, most counselors, most people, most staffers have no idea. But go and look at the big consultants. Look at consultants like WSP, Canadian, 60,000 employees across the globe. It's in every council in New Zealand. Look at AECOM, American engineering firm, close to 50,000 employees across the world. Look at Becca. That's a Southeast Asian engineering firm. And Becca was the first one to launch, uh, to speak about the digital twin city in New Zealand in 2018, five years ago. These are all movers and shakers within our government. And regardless of whosoever comes, and that's a cynical way of looking at it, but I've always found central government elections, and one has just happened recently, they're just a change of guard. Nothing truly changes, does it? Yeah, I mean, I think that you're exactly right. Um, it's the same here. It's the same in Europe. It's the same everywhere. If there is a bright spot, I think it would be that that the NGOs, the multinationals still have to have a puppet. I mean, you you know, when you look at their white papers, they talk about how you have to have you know, in rolling out ESG, you know, just in the corporate sector, you know, the corporate uh, world will say we need government to be involved so that all businesses will get on board and use the universal metrics that are uh -huh. shareable, right? So the corporate sector says we have to have government uh, use its coercive power to do uh, what we want it to do. Uh -huh. um, and then in terms of just public policy, you'll read all over the place that you have to have government involved because of its purchasing power, its power as a convener of different parties, and uh, and also the perception of legitimacy that it still holds. Holds. So, yeah. you know, if the you know, the people we're dealing with have enough money that they could do whatever they wanted. And they have enough cronies in different places that they could do basically whatever they wanted, except that you have to have the public comply. And that's what governments are are useful for right now, is that they can get the public to comply, not because the public likes the policy or believes that they have contributed it to it, its formation, but because they think that what the government does is justifiable as an authority, right? So, uh -huh. or they're scared of being locked up or, you know, taxed or something. Yeah. But that is, I think, something that the people of all the world's nations, and if if just one country did it, one place did it, I don't care where it is, it's probably not going to be here in the States because people are too fat and lazy. Um, but if one small group could have enough people that said, we are not going to listen to... Mm -hmm 
to this anymore. And and in fact, we have our own ideas of what government should be. Now they're totally theoretical. You know, they they're not operative in practice. But that myth that 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 governmental institutions should respond to the people. If you have enough people that believe that, then that's very powerful, right? Uh, and you take away the the main tool that our resetters have to hide behind and to force our compliance. So on the one hand, I think there's not much hope for the government, for, you know, our existing governments, our elections are corrupt. You know, the Department of Justice in the U.S. is a big sham. They're, they're criminals, you know. But if the people can revive this myth about representative government and and if they can use their 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 influence in their own local area to you know make local counselors see that it's best to go with the will of the people and their myth than to take the money i think we have we have some opportunity there to fight that so last question for me is around property rights and um what you've just said if I take it to my zenith, <laughs> my thinking of it, it all comes back to the property right, uh, especially for the individual. Um, and if that was upheld and uh, the real institutions that we had um, leading to having uh, established property rights were, were upheld today, we wouldn't even have to have this discussion. Right. I mean, you know, there's a reason why the WEF is using this slogan, you'll own nothing and be happy. It, it, it starts with the land and what, what our resetters want is all of the land. So, you know, you mentioned the 30 by 30 program. We have this, you know, it's the Convention on Biodiversity, which actually seeks to track all genetic material of, of every human being, even, um, as, part of the global heritage. Mm -hmm. They're going to do it through land grabs and conservation trusts. And in this way, by setting up conservation trusts that are sold to the public in terms of protecting the planet, you know, they're going to shut out all it, small individual property owners and set up community funds, community foundations, urban wealth funds, there are a ton of different names for this, that will manage those conservation trusts that can never come back into, you know, the public marketplace. So, you know, you see the statistics, so many people, by the year 2050, so many people are going to live in cities. Mm, you know? Yeah. This is not an organic movement people are actually trying to get out of cities, I think, right? Yeah. Um, but all of the propaganda says that they're moving in. Well, how is that? It's because of these land grabs. Uh, you know, people can't afford land. Um, so they're going to be forced into the cities and you really won't own anything there. And people are just going to forget. They're going to forget that there was something such as land ownership and Welcome back to the feudal era, except with the brutality of, you know, the singularity and the AI. So people of the world must fight back. And it sounds impossible. Um, the odds are definitely stacked against us. But I think the, you know, the main 
thing that we can do is to have the conversation. I really think that that is so important because then we're dismantling their propaganda machine. You're giving people the reminder that questions are important. And once people just start, you know, I think discovering, it's not pleasant information, but the, the pleasure of, of really understanding their world better and more fully, then they'll want to dig deeper. At least I'm optimistic about that. So so am I. I, I think we fight because uh, in all of this, you can do as much predictive programming as you like, but human nature, I don't think you can completely pin it down, no matter how amazing a digital twin city you might have. And there is some of us, as you said, stroppy mums and dads, the ones who are not, not going to go along with this. And this is how you fight globalism at your local level, be it your local council or your you know local residents, neighbors, whatever. But it has to be local. That's where it comes from. Because people, as I said, keep looking, going, keep going to your uh, governments for help. Hey, it, it ain't coming there. If you, if you actually want something happening, as Julianne said, look over your fence, speak to a neighbor, chat to someone today and actually speak out loud that what the heck do you think is happening? On that note, Julian, I think we'll wind up this conversation and we'll have to get to you back for more. We've, we've taken a lot of your time today. If you want to follow Julian, please look at her work at heartsoverhexagons.com. She also has a YouTube channel where all these talks that she does while she's traveling across the US, she puts them up there. Dawn and I are very grateful for your time today, Julian. Hopefully it hasn't been too much of an imposition. Oh, it's been a pleasure and it's been so much fun. So I, you know, I hope that it at least touched on a few points that will be helpful to your audience. And, you know, I just want to encourage the people of New Zealand, the Kiwis, as we call them, you know, fight, fight, fight. You know, it, we, we have to protect that spark of freedom and beauty that, allows these conversations to occur and to know that there are, you know, just people who are just like us in other places and there are people that are so different and it is really a sort of mystery of, of this human connection that we have that AI will never be able to replicate. So it's worth fighting for because if we lose it, we won't be able to build it back and it won't be better. <laughs> what a great <laughs> ending. Hey, thanks, Julianne. That was a fabulous ending to a great, uh, great show with you. So thank you uh, for your time. And um, yeah, great spotting, great finding, um, Jasper. I'm grateful that we've had Julianne on our show. Absolutely. Thank you. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Welcome back here with the Greenwash team this morning. And I hope you had time to listen to Professor Julian Romanello from the US, who we had just before this. If not, the recording will be up uh, later this evening, thanks to a wonderful uh, IT team in the background. Don, there was a lot to process in Julian's talk. Well, there is a lot to process, and she has a good outlook out, output online. Sorry, 
and it's available for any of us to 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 read it at leisure but and even watch it at leisure but gee she's a very intense deep thinking person and i think she sees things from a perspective that not many of us have had the courage to do so i take my hat off to her she was very interesting yep she she's a complete nerd and she she trips on the sort of thing that i trip on and it's it's a very sad revelation to me that at the age of ripe old age of 44 digging into this sort of stuff is what i get my kicks out of but heavier well she puts an angle on things that um most mainstream thinking wouldn't do and you do wonder if it's around um the indoctrination that we've had for for so many years that this is how it is and we trust everybody where she's uh, in my opinion sort of sort of questions stuff a bit like i said uh, about our future guest dr yab hanakam but is this true she's asking she's asking that too in many ways but is and this true this is just like the methane accord people asking mm. is this true the freshwater plants people the mm. covid people what is true what is not everything is now in doubt because we have been as we keep saying comfortably numb for years and we do need these people that are willing to challenge the um <clears throat> what is considered a normal narrative uh hmm. as as not being good enough or even accurate or or even they're perhaps saying it's disingenuous i know a lot of self interest a lot of self interest driving stuff now a few key terms that julian used in in her interview digital twin cities smart mm. cities and the 4g and 5g and all of that these associated technologies that, that go along with these but as many of our listeners would know new zealand is the first country in the world that has signed up all of its councils and unitary bodies to the smart city coalition all of them we are the first country you know we we like our first and uh, we've every single council signed up to it now at the same time the other thing she spoke about the digital twin now most of us seem to think that and that's what is the narrative that's pushed us that a digital twin is nothing more than a electronic and e-copy of your city they on all the infrastructure that goes along with it but if you look at the narrative that's been coming along be it from the world economic forum be it from our own infrastructure uh, commission be it from some of the big consulting firms global consulting firms many of whom are in new zealand firms like becca firms like wsp canadian firms like oricon an american firm they have all been talking about this for a long time now julian her uh, this thing conclusion is that these digital twin cities are being used to model real life scenarios and I've, that what could happen do it in an electronic form of the city and then test out stuff because as a dystopian smart cities i'd call them are they as they are being ushered in there's going to be a few who are going to be squawking people like me and many others who ultimately will find life uncomfortable will suddenly find themselves that hey i am not really in control of my own destiny people who suddenly find that their single storied standalone independent house is now no longer getting all the sun 
they are in the shadow of a high rise next door and the property have a pro- probably have a property developer uh nudging them to move along we've already seen instances reported in the news of kiangaura uh, you know being uh, protested against by people who are not happy at where many of the social housing developments are now happening and the articles that come they sort of say these people are nimbies not in my backyards and all of that but i think don it's they're quite within their right if you don't want suddenly want social housing in a particular area because we've seen how social housing due to the absolutely lack of consequences in many places have had long time residents had to move because of nuisance i i don't blame them but most people do not go to see why is this happening it's not like the rest of new zealand is fulled up and we do need to go and put a social housing unit in the middle of uh, i don't know a more uh, upmarket one there is a plan to this there's a method to this madness yeah look there's so many um tentacles to this whole uh angle that you're talking about jaspreet i mean right now new zealand seems to be saying uh the big city auckland is too sprawling you know it uh it's it's in the wrong place really it's a narrow um area where they've got a bridge to cross or it's awkward it's awkward and it's it it needs to stop sprawling because it's hard to feed the infrastructure uh all around the place not sustainable the prop yeah not sustainable the problem is uh, think about it long before you and i were even interested in this stuff um there was mayors of that city really promoting the mass migration from the south pacific into that area and let alone from farmland farming uh, areas of new zealand urbanization so they seduced a lot of people to come to to that area and of course there's many people benefited from urban expansion you know the farmers that were on the fringes of Auckland I'd say at Takapuna or Howick I had an uncle at Howick made a killing out of selling his farm to urban development now they seem to say we want to restrict urban development and we want to go up not out and and that's a problem if you've been brought up on the uh quarter acre sort of piece of paradise uh, philosophy so yeah I've I'm as concerned as you are that uh, people might be forced into um what might look like to us ghettos you know high yeah high density um condos you know and I I couldn't live in one of those but the modern person the young people today have been conditioned to perhaps live in those areas have and, they and and let them live but the point is everyone else because they they talk you know often about uh the social what is the term don you know when consequences spread across to more than uh, your immediate neighborhood oh, i sprawl uh, i mean sprawl but no. more, more than that they talk about these externalities i've got it oh externalities oh, yeah. that's that's <laughs> the term economics <laughs> use oh. so externalities they talk about that now if the fact that you live want to live in a high rise is changing the fabric of the city i grew up in fine it's even changing uh the way my property is now i lose privacy i have you know say 50 uh blocks apartments surrounding me and i i don't feel that i have that peace and quiet that i was used to what is how is uh-huh. that externality being going to be 
made going to be fixed going to be compensated this doesn't seem to be anything here and i have lived in high density places thankfully very short tenures in delhi otherwise i've mainly lived in smaller places because being a daughter of an indian army infantry officer you were at places godforsaken military stations near the border so i have lived a very short part of my life say about 3 years in calcutta and a year in delhi but other than that and i couldn't get out fast enough if anyone has flown into hong kong and as a flight is uh, you know descending approaching the runway you look at the high rises around you i have felt claustrophobic there and do i want to live like that no no i do not but you got to go back to the root cause of this where is this coming from now united nations the un report uh, this was released earlier this year it said by 2.5 uh, by 2050 another 2.5 ish billion people will be living in cities it this report what i found really telling about this one it spoke about mega cities the report estimates that by 2030 that's that's not far 2030 that's 7 years away my daughter will only be 15 my son will be 13 the world could have so called uh, mega cities 43 of them most of them in developing countries and that's where most of the populations will be clustered this mega cities they are referring to 43 mega cities that will be the main hubs of human habitation and that's what they seem to want currently tokyo is the world's largest 37 million people delhi is 29 shanghai 26 and along with that the un it's got this uh, outfit called the united nations habitat uh, center unhabitat.org they had in 2014 so nearly a decade ago issued this policy called a new strategy for sustainable urban planning five principles now these five are number one adequate space for streets and an efficient street network sure number two high density at least 15000 people per square kilometer number three mixed land use so what they want is you will have offices houses everything there's go- all you know all in one those sort of uh, developments a social mix so that kianga or thing i was talking about they don't want gentrification they don't want anything else they want a deliberate social mix it's almost like they deliberately want you know a whole lot of migration and which i think leads to dissolution of cultures and then they want limited land use specialization so if you want mixed land use obviously you have to stop the specializations so these are the five principles Delhi currently stands at about 18000 inhabitants per square kilometer. The UN how was, hasn't how, how was that? <laughs> Couldn't wait to get out of that place fast enough, don't. Mm. Uh, each time I remember just once you would head out of the NCR region it's like right now one can find a place somewhere to have a drink or something as you've you've left the sprawl behind. It just felt a lot less claustrophobic. But the UN has issued these guidelines guidelines 15000 people per square kilometer it's not qualified that by saying just here when the un issues an edict it's all 194 195 countries everyone this is what you do and it's in now in our planning documents stone you and i were looking at the new plymouth plans and the christchurch city council plans well and- 
I'm going to I'm going to stop you there. Surely this is a good idea, Jaspreet. I mean, there's one template for the world. That means no more planners. Nobody. We just just give it to the engineers and say, look, we're going to have peas in the pod. We're going to have um, clone cities all around the world. There will be no need for any more urban planning because it's all done off a template that came out of New York or Geneva. What would yeah. you think? By an outfit, unelected, unaccountable. Uh, no, thank you. Uh, I'm pleased you think like that. So I'm, I'm referring to this document from the New Plymouth District Council. They call it the Central Area Housing Project. New Plymouth did a study for the inner city medium density housing choices for New Plymouth. It almost sounds like the transport choices program that NZTA has done to put more bike lanes and all of that, whereas letting our roads go to the dogs. But scrolling through this one, it's pretty amazing what they want what they want us to do. They say that the it's hilarious even reading these bits. They speak about the fact that we need to have mixed used spaces, need to have vibrant, high quality, sustainable urban form. And they say, New Plymouth, the central area of New Plymouth, needs to be a place to live, work, and play. This is a phrase Julianne used in her talk, that each time you see live, work, and play in your central planning documents, be very wary. What they're essentially telling you is, this is where you will live, work, and play. You will, just like you own nothing and you will be happy, this is where you will live, work, and play, because this is where you'll be restricted to. Yeah. They don't want cars. They don't want you to be able to travel too much. They want you to work from home. Basically, they want you in an urban ghetto. Yeah, and Julian, um, Julianne, sorry, she did um, talk about the you need to check out your language of your planning documents and and things that you can get access to at councils. For instance, she said how to identify the reset agenda and the comprehensive planning document is a scan and resort re, re, scan for reset template, buzzwords, phrases, graphics, compare document structure with the reset template, uh, section titles, topics, uh, test for the communi communitarian balancing formula for specific policy solutions and for specific policy solutions, and check out the credentials of authors and more. I mean, she is, she's a wily customer, Julianne, and um, she's giving us some advice. So, you know, if even if you're as cynical as I am about this, I don't. I don't see it quite as um, as <clears throat> intensely concerning as you guys do, as you do, Jaspreet. But mm -hmm. I'm slowly warming to. I'm warming to it that there's stuff in here that does need to be attacked and and questioned and in interrogated. And when when you see the conclusion of that document at um, at the New Plymouth Council, it it was pretty damning too. And sorry, I've now lost my screen. So no, no, no. Um, it's can't. it's all good. So the same UNHabitat.org website that is mentioned, where it has the five principles of inclusivity and mixed land use and no specialization and fifteen thousand per square kilometer. They also have a full thirty-six page template of this document that says my neighborhood. You can actually download that one from the UN Habitat called My Neighborhood. And they've got, they've pretty much told you how from this point on, from after this decree on, how your cities should be looking like. The document begins with saying, you need a compact city. 
a connected city, an inclusive city, mm-hmm. a vibrant city, a resilient city. Look at your council documents. Look at your planning documents. Your uh, even the blurbs from your uh, property developers. You will see these words: compact, no more urban sprawl. Hell no, that is hellish. You are supposed to be all in one place. I think the Christchurch council document said Christchurch will rise, meaning you will literally go up in the air. You'll not be allowed to sprawl. So compact, walkable city, and so on from this My Neighborhood document. It speaks about, again, the same mixed land use because it says that uh, people are commuting too far. You know, you need to have people restricted because, of course, emissions, 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 carbon emissions, global warming, and so on. And it says you need to have sustainable parking policies and reforms. Have you done? Have you noticed new parking meters popping up in places where they weren't? I have, and I've only been in Invercargill eight years. I've noted a lot, a lot less of the parking spots full stop yeah. because um, they're trying to get cars off the street. Mm. So the the UN habitats, the neighbourhood document, my neighbourhood document says, you need to have more efficient uh, street parking management, reduction of on and off street parking to help de incentivize driving mitigate emissions and reclaim valuable public space. It says this goes with SDG 1, 11, and 13. Julianne also spoke about transit-oriented development because when you're not allowed cars, or it's made so so bad that you just throw up your hands, you sell your car and you go, right, tell me what to do. Govern me, please, harder. Well, she talks about transit-oriented development. So you are, you'll be living within close proximity of public transport, it doesn't talk anything about the quality of that public transport because, you know, I don't mind public transport. I've used a whole lot of it, but it needs to be efficient, on time, and available when I need it. And somehow the population density of New Zealand, other than in Auckland and a couple of more places, Wellington, Tauranga, Christchurch, doesn't seem to support that. It's economically not feasible. Heck, they haven't even made the Tihuia train between Hamilton and Auckland be able to pay its way yet. Oh, and, and a lot of public transport in this country is subsidised by ratepayers, so I don't think any of them pay their way, Jasper. No, they do not. They do not. So it, it it's intriguing, all this stuff. I mean, it, it makes you wonder um, what's wrong with what we've got. I mean, I, I know we live in a very small province with, with a small city. Um, I don't see that changing anytime soon. There's nothing going to be changing downtown in Chicago, for instance, because we're a very um, low-density city. Um, so we're talking about where we want to put more people into compact, com- you know, are we, are we wanting to ghettoize people? How are we going to get all these climate refugees and pack them in and stack them? Oh, just like Alan Bollard said last month in the uh, mm. the UN conference in Wellington. Mm. Yep, because he said we need to be ready. The neighborhood, my neighborhood document also states from the UN that your road hierarchy, the networks, should support a wide, wide choice of routes based on user hierarchies that prioritizes non-motorized transport and pedestrians. It's important that rules for walking, cycling are well-defined. It is that prescriptive, that prescriptive to say that then the street network should have at least 18 kilometers of street length per square kilometer because 
that's that's massive 18 kilometers but if you are going to have so many people 15000 at least per square kilometer you need to have exit routes and then <laughs> talk about prescriptive it says a reference indicator of uh, the street network indicates that you need at least 80 to 100 street intersections per square kilometer so right down to talk about micromanaging our lives so this is from the un and i find these same buzzwords in the council documents you and i were uh, looking at the new plymouth went on mm. and the first thing i when i look at a council document is i do a control f and i search for united nations and there lo and behold in the references it says un habitat 2012 place making and the future of uh, cities and why is it it says that the new plymouth council is working towards and this is a word salad place making as a transparent organic and bottom up process to turn the public realm into inclusive enjoyable sustainable and walkable places god I, whatever happened it's, to english it is with with the plain english without all this fluff oh no no that that fluff is, just means nirvana it means an absolute nirvana state paradise you're not you're not convinced are you <laughs> I, I, it doesn't sound like paradise we then <laughs> the document goes on to say that the 10 minute slash 800 meter walking catchment template is based on the rule of thumb practiced by the new zealand transportation planners and is determined as a distance people are willing to walk to their destinations and there you have it if you're talking about a 10 minute city mm. 15 minute city yeah where where do we make a stop how far do we go down this this path well <clears throat> i i don't think uh, much is going to change actually jasper because people are smarter than us you know they mm. don't want to be herded and controlled and i'm not sure if you want to fast forward to the conclusion um where which is quite what of, often what i do i read the uh, introduction and the conclusion the bits in between <laughs> just don't don't do it for me so sorry the guts of it isn't where i am but in the conclusion for this new plymouth one they say as this report has hopefully illustrated there is no need to reinvent the wheel New Plymouth can draw from the various successful international and national examples of urban design and medium density housing guidelines to make the central area more vibrant and successful. And I remember downtown in Chicago had these international consultants tell them how they could um, manage the downtown. Um, we've had several consultants um, report on that, and of course, the population of of Chicago hadn't grown, so yeah, it didn't quite happen the way they thought but then it goes on to talk about collaborative workshops and discussions need to be held to find out what key landowners are thinking of doing over the next 5 years and what visions what are the visions of those shaping place in cent- in the central area and how the lending institutions could work there's so many ifs coulds maybes i just think um Uh, you should just say let's kick this down the road it's it's just going to be parked surely there's nothing to see here jasper lending institutions there <laughs> i i mean should i dare I use the word segue we 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 have to segue into lending institutions and banks in a moment but mm. for now what they're saying is they're going to get banks on board if you've tried to get a loan for say a house um, a lifestyle block or something it's getting harder we might get an yeah. approval for an apartment building faster 
In fact, you might just be nudged in that direction because that might just be the only sort of uh, habitat you are going to be funded for. Yep. And because yep. the financial thing is the crux of it. If you don't get finance, well, you will take whatever you're getting funded for, won't you? Mm. And, and, and listeners have heard of us talking about environmental social governance and, and how um, the banks have, have bought into that hook, line and sinker. Um, and so we've got one major bank in New Zealand that's into the net zero banking um uh, realm and of course the other four major banks their head offices in australia are right in it so you know if you don't do what they want and don't uh don't tick the boxes maybe the financial institutions won't lend to you what do you think 100 it's it's already happening it is already happening i mean uh, the new Plymouth council document makes a reference to the christchurch council's urban planning development document called Exploring new housing choices for changing lifestyles. Now, who changed these lifestyles? How did this happen? Because I would have thought many of what this is happening had between banking, councils not releasing land, deliberately causing, you know, more intensification, had in the last term, both the main parties, National and ACT, not got together and supported the medium density housing changes, all of this has been collaborative between the regulators, the financial institutions, and our so-called representatives. Hmm. On the other side, I'll counter a bit of all that. I mean, if you are an engineer, or you're a planner, or you're a road builder, or you're a drain layer, you want stuff to be replaced and renewed. You just want consumption. You want things to be rebuilt. Um, mm. So no one's going to resist the stuff if it comes around uh, the way it looks. Uh, if there's demand, now that's the other thing: is there going to be demand for this in some of the smaller cities of New Zealand? I don't think so. In fact, the last sentence of that conclusion on the New Plymouth says <laughs> the vast they represent uh, talks about two case studies. Best practice medium density typologies have been illustrated in this report based on comprehensive analysis of the existing situation and with urban design principles in mind. They represent the vast opportunities and potential that New Plymouth has locked up behind its current business-as-usual mindset. So um, is is that an arrogant statement by the oh. author, or, or is it real? Because actually, you know, no, business-as-usual is what we do until we don't. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what changes that? It's just the evolution of ideas, ideas. And, and over over time, people that think they can manage business as usual uh, to a to a to an immediate transition to something else are you know, in fairyland. It just doesn't happen. No, it it just doesn't happen, and it is the whole thing about this top-down set of instructions coming. Something came from the UN, every mm. single country's documentation, planning documentation, all of them carry this. We have yeah. these consultants. Uh, they are mega consultants. They yes. are. They span the globe between, yeah. you know, yeah. Becca and WSP and Oricon. And uh, there you have it. Before people realize that it you know there might be someone who's contacting their mp there might be someone who's contacting the councillor i often tell people go go and look at your planning uh, you know what plan is working 
someone asked me about 20 minute cities and uh, is it in the council documents and i was like no but it is certainly in the council's consultants documents go to the site uh, called wsp uh, it is wsp expanded in new zealand by taking over opus so it's wsp.com go and search for the 20 minute city in aotearoa and it tells you how is it's working with helen clark foundation to make spongy cities whatever that means is it be a sponge cake at one time spongy cities the mind boggles <laughs> at the possibilities don't but and this this is what is going on so often i think one needs to look we are barking up the wrong wrong tree mm. and, and and so what will it take uh, to to get some sort of semblance of normality back in all this i mean i again i have to say i'm not against um creative people i'm not uh, uh but i do have a problem with creative people destroying the property right of or having disregard for the property right of of individuals and therefore um and and who who might fund their creative ideas i mean they don't seem to have a feeling for where the money comes from no and they don't dana they compl- not even a sense there's no respect for someone else's money it's so easy to spend it and yeah. the amount of propaganda coming through this one article on indian z herald this june which was titled it's crunch time we need an mm. auckland digital twin june this year it began with saying auckland needs a dollar 1 million worth of a digital twin city project and then it's a whole lot of people saying why they need it there is uh, the becca consultants uh, representative matt wheeler saying that uh, it makes it easier for people to take part in conserve in the city's future conservation cultural historical perspective and becomes a tool for storytelling right a 1 million dollar tool mm-hmm. then there is uh, another person and yet another uh, consultant who's saying that written found that for every 1 pound invested in it it saved 6 pounds of labor time in these digital twin city models while boosting government's efforts to reach net zero so there is one talking about one reason to have digital twin there's another talking it's about net zero then we have dr donnell klein the research fellow at the university of auckland's center for informed futures uh, who has a background in economics and advises our treasury and the united nations saying that this project is all about equity for access to education and healthcare services and finally we have the local ev saying that without the digital twin city there's no way to tell stories of the cultural significance of places in auckland uh, before uh, you know pre european settlement like i i recognize propaganda when i see it there is four people using four different things to tell me how much i need this and then it all comes down to then of course auckland is being used as an example on the world economic forums page and uh, how this digital twin city model is going ahead but all of this ultimately it's, it's talking about more digital when i when i you know my thinking about digital has changed now when i think digital i think more data sharing more lack of privacy more control more surveillance more surveillance mm. yeah i don't know where it all um begin or ends jasper but it's interesting uh, in recent weeks i don't know if you're reading the same stuff as me but 
there's people getting mightily sick of the World Economic Forum and the United Nations edicts. And the net zero stuff seems to be falling apart in the Northern Hemisphere. The drive to EVs in the Northern Hemisphere, the, the, the big production push of, of EVs seems to be having a problem. Um, there is now buyer resistance to pure EVs at least. <clears throat> Maybe hybrids are still still um, getting, mm. getting made, but the wheels seem to be falling off. And I, I'm reading enough documents now to say the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and the WHO and the IMF have just ha- had too much say. Yeah. Am I, yeah. am I being too optimistic? Am I being too optimistic? Uh, no, no, no. I, I'm optimistic. I will always, I'm an eternal optimist in all of this because it's always humanity that trumps, you know, phrases come and phrases go. And these, all of this lot, they have not factored in the human spirit in this. You can make as many digital twin cities and carry as many event 201 like scenarios mm. like Yates did before COVID. But there is only so much people will take before you start seeing the resistance. And yeah, that's where it will go. But I think, John, yeah. at this point, it is time to uh, introduce our next guest and why we are heading that way towards the banking study in New Zealand. Yeah, well, look, we interviewed um, Richard McIntyre, who's the Federated Farmers Dairy Chairman, but he's also their finance and commerce uh, spokesman. So we wanted to put to him questions like, uh, you know, how farming's being treated by the banks at the moment. Um, there is a, a feeling that they're being um, overcharged for interest, uh, bearing in mind that the borrowing by the agriculture sector is about, I think, 11 percent of the total. And dairying is about uh, 60% of that 11%. So it's a significant chunk of the New Zealand um, banking landscape, but it's by no means the the dominant one, which is business and housing. And so we put it to him about whether he thinks um, they're getting a fair shake of the stick. And secondly, we put it to him that uh, is he or ask him, is he aware about this net zero banking alliance and uh, the potential for perhaps anti-competitive behaviour? So this and is the I, United Nations convened mm. net zero banking alliance. Well, they have all yet again signed up to another UN treaty. Mm. And uh, if you see, and banks have all had record profits in recent years, record profits. They are not short of a bob or two. Yeah, and and of course the dominance is with the big five, and the little guys in New Zealand just aren't aren't interested in rural lending now. It's just all too hard. So we had a great interview with Richard. I mean, uh, I of course loyal to my old organisation. I was heartened to to hear someone as eloquent as as Richard. The way he spoke and presented his case was fantastic. So yeah, sit back and listen to Richard, and we'll see you after the break. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. Twenty fifty seven or inbox at the rate reality check dot radio. And welcome back to Greenwashed on RCR with Don and Jaspreet. Um, hope you've had a great weekend, but uh, it's uh, it's time to have some good weather in the south, isn't it, Jaspreet? Well, yes, it sure is. Pretty blustery out here. That's pretty blustery. But anyway, that's what farming is all about. And so a couple of weeks ago, just after the election, we had a program where uh, we had myself and three other past national presidents of Fed Farmers on. We couldn't get Wayne Langford, the current uh, incumbent president. And so today we're following up with Richard McIntyre, the dairy chair uh, for Fed Farmers and a national board member who is also responsible 
responsible for immigration and labour, employment relations, animal welfare, domestic commerce and competition, firearms and rural policing. And um, welcome, Richard. We do intend to have you on mainly around the commerce and competition stuff, but there's a whole lot of stuff going on in feds. Do you want to give us a bit of an update on, on yourself, where you've come from? You've had a varied career leading into feds. I know that um, being Deputy Chair of Fish and Game, for instance, that's a bit of a contrast for feds. <laughs> yes, hey, thank you very much for having me on the show, Don. Um, much appreciated. So I'm a herd-owning sheep milker in the Horafanua, um, just south of Foxen. Um, I've worked my way up alongside my, my wife and, and kids um, to get to this position through variable order share milking. Um, I started in feds um, 10 years ago and, and it became the the share milker chair, national share milker chair, um, having started off in the Manawatu Rangitiki and um, then two years ago became the national dairy chair, um, which was quite cool. Sort of um, working alongside that, um, you know, I think like a lot of farmers, um, I was increasingly frustrated with um, a lot of the narratives that fish and game were pushing, but um, at the same time, a hugely passionate game bird hunter and a a relatively uncoordinated fire fisherman as well, to be fair. Um, and so I decided that the best thing for me to do um, was to actually put my name forwards and see if I could get on the Fishing Game Council and actually do something about it. Um, there's a saying that, that I like to use a fair bit, that if you're not if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I think we're very much suffering from that in, in that respect because a lot of, a lot of Fishing Game Councillors that I knew already um, were good people, um, but they didn't understand us very well and we probably didn't understand them very well. So I put my name forward, I think it was five or six years ago now, um, and was lucky enough to get, to get elected to the Wellington um, Fishing Game Council. And um, yeah, a couple of years later, um, found myself on the Fishing Game New Zealand Council as well as the Wellington appointee. And then um, I spent about a year as um, the deputy chair of Fishing Game New Zealand, um, which was which was really cool. And I just stepped down when I took over um, the role as um, as Federated Farmers National Dairy Chair, just because uh, I, there are a few too many um, time commitments and that sort of thing. But yeah, it's it's been very interesting actually understanding both sides and getting to know everyone and trying to, I guess, create some win-win situations where we can. And, and so what I learned in my time in Fed Farmers was, yeah, you go in with a lot of expectation privately and you're trying to, you're going to make a big difference on a variety of things, but you generally have a key subject. But what I've noted you do very soon after you get into the Federation machine is you all of a sudden um, have your wings spread because you actually have to be over a whole lot more stuff. And I'm I'm impressed by your list of portfolios because they are critical uh, portfolios, especially the one on um, competition and, uh, you know, domestic sort of, policy settings around you know the banking sector for instance and so just if we can fast forward because we've only got perhaps half an hour um we'll have you back of course one day i hope um is what's farming like at the moment it seems to me everything we're reading is a bit a bit doomsday-ish um but is there any light on the horizon Look, you know, farming is certainly very challenging at the moment. You know, we have, um, I, I guess, you know, everyone's suffering from inflation at the moment, but um, farmers have been suffering from 14 to 17% inflation over the last few years. So their farm working expenses have gone up hugely, we, you know, whereas the, the rest of the country is, you know, around the 7% mark. 
Um, at the same time, we've got commodity prices that have been falling over the last year or so. You know, the, the dairy price has dropped and certainly um, sheep and beef returns are very challenging at the moment as well. Um, if you add to that the um, the various climatic events that we've had, you know, obviously the, the cyclones earlier on in the year have um, have really challenged certain farming regions in that respect. And then we've got um, what was essentially this never-ending um, <laughs> never-ending line of poorly thought through regulation that we've had coming across us um, for the last probably six years. And, you know, we can argue about the direction of travel, but the biggest issue was the fact that it was pushed on farmers too fast for us to make any changes, you know, in a meaningful way. And also, um, in a way that, that created significant unintended consequences. So even if the desired outcome was achieved, there was so much collateral damage or unnecessarily, unnecessary wastage, I suppose, created that it was always going to be um, be a real challenge for farmers to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, if it had been in private business um, doing the same um, sort of uh management of, of their fiscal or their fiscal management that all be broke that all be broke no business no banker would leave a lend to uh to a system that that farmers have had to endure uh forced on them by government i mean so government actually uh i look at it this way richard i know i didn't that didn't make much sense i look at it this way that um the way the country has been managed the last six years especially has has no similar there's hardly a time in history where it could have been managed more more poorly um and the damage it's done is coming right inside the farm gate on steroids and was that intentional do you think or uh, so by design or or was it just accidental because this seems like it is you use the word unprecedented often in, in media these days it is unprecedented. I lived through the 80s. This strikes me as far worse stewardship by a government. Now I know you're not gonna you're not gonna badmouth um people individually, um, but but you surely we've seen this stuff before, but never quite like this is what I'm getting at. Do you agree? The, the last the last few years have, have been very unprecedented to use your term. Um look I <laughs> I, I would hesitate to say that there were bad intentions towards agriculture in terms of, you know, all this is on purpose and, and by design. But I, I do think there was a lack of desire to actually understand um, the all of the consequences of, of what was being um, being in, in, inflicted upon farmers, I, I suppose, in that respect. And I know... I know from a you know obviously with Fed, within feds we we do a lot of um you know consultation um or heavily involved in the consultation process and i remember at one point thinking jeepers is it even worth us um submitting on this because they're just not they don't listen um you know and we can talk about all the unintended consequences and all that sort of stuff and hey why don't you do this yes it's a slightly slower but it's gonna there's gonna be far less collateral damage and and it was a real struggle to, um, you know, we, we basically wouldn't get listened to at all. And that was a real challenge in that respect. Well, and, and you know, on that front, I've always had an issue with um, the federations. And, even, you know, while I was there and even before and after, we sort of dignify government uh, and local government output by even submitting. And there does come a time when I actually agree, Richard, you have to almost 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 draw a line in the sand and saying, I'm not submitting on any more of this because all we're doing is dignifying 
a bad process. Uh, but then you get vilified for not being there because your members want you to be um, doing this sort of stuff. So it is a it is a, a fine line. And let's get on to the commercial stuff with banking. I mean, I think you've got a fantastic um, policy I- boss there in terms of Nick Clark. So, you know, good advice is coming through your system. I mean, he was around when I was there. So Nick's a stalwart for the organization and very, very solid on this stuff. He knows sort of 20 plus years of history of, of the lobbying we've done. What's changed? And sorry, Jasper, I know you have no. a question to come in. What's changed in uh, in recent years that have made, it almost looks like history repeating itself. Uh, we went through the GFC in 2007, 8, 9, and Nick was there helping me out on it then. Um, here we are in 2023, similar stuff. Banks seem to be gouging. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really interesting one. Um, you know, wh- where this has become interesting for us is, you know, obviously interest rates have gone up significantly over the last wee while and in in a way that's been very unexpected. So no one's really built that into their um, feasibility, um, you know, studies that, they were, you know, whether it was buying a house or buying a farm or anything like that. But what what's, what's really interested farmers or concerned farmers is that, you know, a lot of residential mortgages, you know, they're talking sort of 7% or something like that, whereas... Um, rural rural mortgages have been more like nine percent, and there's so there's been a big a big um, gap between the two. Um, and then if you if you look at the bank's margins that they're actually making um, over the last sort of three three or four years, um, the bank's margins on rural lending have increased, while while their residential lending margins have decreased, or while they're making um, record breaking profits. Um, you know, so yep. but that really piqued our interest in that respect. Hmm. Yep. Richard, uh, Don and I had both read this article, uh, this headline, that Farmers Lobby Group, referring to Fed's once rural banking probe, suggests banks' move towards net zero could reduce competition in agriculture banking. And for listeners, what we are speaking about here is that most of the main banks have signed up to the NZBA, which is a net zero banking alliance, which is convened by the United Nations. And uh, they're all you know, in a way, as Richard, your article seemed to suggest, it's anti-competitive, right? And no one else seems to have picked up on that. And I am really interested. What do you think? What, what, how can we, how badly are we stuck here? What, what is the possibility of, what are we looking at soon? Because I look at Holland, I look at how Rabobank downgraded its entire portfolio of rural lending. Yeah, look, you know, we're we're very concerned by this. Um, you know, fundamentally, Fed's position is that we we do prefer, um, you know, the market to lead change. You know, rather than than you know, I guess heavy handed government regulation, but at the same time, we want the market to be able to do that in a competitive manner, so that um, if they choose to make a change, um, then they their customers will essentially choose to go with them or not. Where, where there's a problem here is where where this all these banks have got together, like you say, in this United Nations forum, and set these targets for emissions reduction. You know, as and and this is you know in New Zealand context, you know, apply to agriculture, and so um, farmers actually won't have a choice. Um, they will be inflicting upon this um, in various form, inflicting this upon farmers in various forms. Um, without giving farmers or, or any other customers realistically the option of going to a different bank because they have all made this decision. Um, and and that, that, to me, is very anti-competitive. And, and you know, I, I do think the Commerce Commission do need to have a very good look into it and see if there are any issues there. 
And then to add to it, and I'll show my bias here. I'm a dairy farmer. You're you're the dairy chair. And uh, we are talking about those farmers right now being penalized whose carbon footprint is less than 30% of the world's average and 30% lower than our counterparts in you know Europe and the North America. You said, Richard, at the beginning that you know the rate at which the change has been coming for us is uh, we can't manage it. But my question to that is, do we even have, have to? It's like telling a top uh, a player at the peak of the game, an Olympic athlete or something, do more, do better. But we are already at the top of our game here. Yeah, but but to stay the same is to go backwards because everyone's yeah. evolving. You know, we're at the point now where um, dairy farms in the states, um, some of the the bigger, more efficient ones are actually actually have a lower footprint than ours, um, and they're uh-huh. actually more economic than ours as well. And so we need to just like we have over the last 20, 30 years um, evolved. We need to keep doing that um, in order to stay ahead of everyone else. So I I certainly am not um, a proponent of of staying the same. I think uh-huh. we need to keep on always trying to get more get get better and and be more efficient in what we do um the the issue is as well though when we have these targets set um by others um i think there's a little bit of a problem in that respect and it's certainly very uncomfortable from a farming point of view then i bring something else into it richard when i came to new zealand in 2009 started farming i still remember my first paycheck was 13 dollars 25 an hour that was the minimum wage at that point and that's what i had started now a few years ago 2017, I'd say the government brought in the median wage, you know, at which migrants need to be employed. Now, my husband and I, we contract milking 1,200 cows over two adjoining farms, pretty much one farm, a long, narrow farm, the two cow sheds. Now, the minimum wage has gone up to pretty much, you know, I can call it rounded off to $30. Do U.S. farmers face similar legislated pressures? Are they paying their staff $30 an hour? And you're saying, you know, they're still more economic. We have had this whole regime of this being foisted upon us by the regulator, by the machinery. Obviously, we are, we're going to be feeling the pain here sooner or later. For someone, you know, I, I know of contract milkers, large-scale contract milkers who need to hire staff who are going back on wages. And, you know, there might come a stage where someone like us might join their ranks because it is no longer possible to make ends meet. Oh, you're exactly right. You know, there there are so many challenges in that respect. You know, you're talking about, um, you know, we're talking about contract milkers. You know, the biggest cost is actually labour, and uh-huh. so to have um, labour costs go up as much as they have over the last few years. Um, you know, partially because of the border closures, closures, and and government settings in that respect. Um, you know, while at the same time being expected to meet um a you know a contract rate that is signed up to a couple of years previously with, you know, an, an expected um labour rate that's now changed hugely. You know, it's it's a big problem and it's something that the contract milking sector is going to really have to deal with in terms of the ability to renegotiate contracts when required and hopefully from what i can gather a lot of farm owners have actually stepped in and supported some contract milkers understanding that their costs have gone up hugely and if they want to keep good people in the industry they've actually got to support them because who else is going to run their farms for them but then there's not a lot left over is there don for you know environmental endeavors well never has been uh really everyone's having a, a, a you know you have good and bad years in farming and in the good years you're generally paying debt uh, and doing capital replacement and stuff like that and you've all done your environmental enhancement and the stuff that you yeah you know, the right thing to do but the, the biggest cost of course jasper and you know this um aside from interest and in fertilizer two biggies are uh, the uh un- you know the 
the non-tradables, the uh, the local and central government costs, and they're the ones uh, eating us up. I mean, it was only a couple of years ago the council down here had a 30% general rate increase. Uh, I mean, how can anyone ever justify that when inflation was running at 3%? Only local and central government can seemingly justify that. So, yeah, I think, Richard, you face the same challenges today that I faced in my time. And Owen, who was on our show a couple of weeks ago, Owen Jennings faced a way back in the 80s. Um, everybody's um, looking for their piece of action out of farming as well. Uh, some of it certainly isn't market driven. And yet we're told often that the marketplace is desiring X, Y, Z. Uh, no, this is self-interest, in my opinion, by many, many employees in the state sector. But that aside, I want to go right back because there's something that concerned me in a um, in this press statement about the banking and the dominance of the big five. And it was the squeeze that appeared to happen in 2021. Uh, the SBS, the South and Building Society uh, CEO at the time said um, he just didn't want to be in the rural lending space uh, and nor did Kiwi Bank uh, and one other bank from memory um, because of how awkward it was for them has and i'm not sure if i read i've found anything since to say that those little banks are getting a fair shake of the stick when it comes to rural lending is it still too hard and dominated well i know it's dominated by the big five but is it still too hard for the little little guys to get into rural banking well that's part of what we want to um, establish um from this inquiry that we're we're mm. looking um, that we're asking for, sorry, um, because we do not, we don't think there's enough competition. We think it's very interesting that the likes of Kiwi Bank um, have decided they don't want to be in the rural space, mm-hmm. um, and we, yeah, we want to understand that far better because you know having having more competition will certainly help to drive um, lower interest rates or lower margins, I suppose, for the banks in that respect. Mm. So, are you confident this next administration will pick up this uh, as one of the? The key things for, I, I know the farmer organisation had some uh, manifesto type document put out, uh, is that the expectation that uh, whatever this next coalition will be, we'll pick it up and and have a look? So so from our discussions with them, no one said that they think it's a bad idea, um, which is which is a positive to begin with. But um, at, the, at this point, we haven't been able to get them to to commit to it, um, or we couldn't get them to commit to a pre-election, I should say. So I'm very hopeful we'll be able to get it um, to happen. It's just um, just a matter of keeping the pressure up um, on on the new coalition um, once it's formed in order to get it across the line. All right. Well, look, there's a, another thing. I'd, I'd, if I may interrupt here, I've been looking at that the Reserve Bank is expecting that there might be default here and default to increase in the rural space. Their full press release will be out, uh, I think, in a couple of days. But right now, there's just been a preview in a couple of headlines. They keep telling us, I mean, our industry bodies, be it Dairy NZ, LIC, Fonter, and so on, they keep telling us there's a market premium. That's what New Zealand's aiming for. Our commodity prices are falling. And yet, if I look at uh, the IMDs released yesterday, the International Sustainable Daily Trade Index, New Zealand, for the second year in a row, has stopped it out of over 100 countries because our environmental credentials are impeccable. When will we see this mythical premium that is supposed to be coming and, you know, getting us all uh, laughing all the way to the bank? <laughs> yeah, Chief, I'd love to have a crystal ball, crystal ball, and be able to answer that question properly. Look, I, I've asked a few times, um, 
you know, well, Fonterra's, you know, talking about their scope through emissions targets um, that are going to be released next month and, and all their various um, things that they are interested in within their cooperative difference. And that, you know, if, if we're doing all of this, um, you know, as a Fonterra supplier, I should say, um, and the other independent processes aren't as interested in this, you know, at what point are we actually going to see a divergence between Fonterra's milk price and the independent processes? And um, and I haven't really received a proper answer for that yet. Um, it seems to be more around the idea that it, it, it provides um, some surety of being able to sell a product into the future as the world becomes more and more interested in these things. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know where this mythical extra money is actually coming from, and I'd really love to see it because it's, there's certainly a cost to all this change that, you know, that, that farmers are embarking upon. Um, so it'd be nice to be properly rewarded for it. Well, we're often told the catch cry was value add. Uh, everything's value add. And I always used to have the refrain, well, how about some value capture that comes back inside the farm gate? Because plenty of other people seem to be getting their share of the pie. And uh, on the on the way through, and I yeah, the other side of it is, uh, and I, it's a cruel world. But uh, farmers are just the residue receiver. That's it. You're the residue of um, receiver of the whole supply chain. That's it. So anything that adds costs uh, in in between uh, you and the consumer, uh, it's after everybody else has been paid. And and you know it's it's very convenient for um, perhaps let's say a supermarket shopper to blame the farmer. Um, they don't really often think of what's gone in between the farm and that supermarket shelf. So maybe there's a disconnect that we've got to constantly um, have in front of people. But, hey, look, let's go back to some other stuff. Um, I think we need to put this all in perspective. New Zealand um, agriculture sector, the primary sector, uh, is 11% of all bank lending in this country. And, and within that sector, the dairy sector uh, is dominant it takes about 60 percent of that um with sheep and beef the second largest at 25 percent we're actually small bickies compared to the total pie of lending in this country which is to business and housing it seems odd that the lifeblood of the economy is the one that gets screwed over the most in terms of premiums for interest as opposed to those that perhaps aren't taking quite the same level of risk. They haven't got climatic risk. They haven't got marketplace risk. They haven't got transport risk. Yeah, it's how, how can we counter this? I mean, I remember in 2008 uh, or might have been 2009, I can't remember, uh, Richard, that the Reserve Bank governor of the time told federated farmers to go out and jawbone down interest rates because we were being screwed. And we did. And uh, we we encouraged interest rates to come down quicker than they may have otherwise. Uh, is that an, is that what Feds may start doing? Look, we're certainly hoping to to shine a bit of bit of light onto what, you know what's happening in the rural banking space. You know, this is this is all behind our call for an inquiry in that respect, so that mm. we can we can understand why there is that difference in interest rates um and you know some of it may be banks um taking excessive profits off um off 
you know, rural businesses so that they can subsidize um, the rural, sorry, the, the residential market. Um, but, you know, some of it might be regulation. I know that the Reserve Bank um, a few years back um, put something in place where, um, you know, the, the rural market needed to be able to withstand uh, one in, I think it's 200-year um, financial crisis. Um, and so banks have to um, hold more money in reserves when they lend it to, to rural businesses um, versus residential. So we've got to look at all that regulation as well and say, look, is this is this fit for purpose? Is it achieving what it needs to achieve in that respect, or could we scale it back a bit and um, and and provide a better deal for farmers in that respect as well? Yeah, look, and I I agree with all that. I mean, it, each country is different, but the way I and I think you've grasped this uh, and presented it earlier in this discussion that New Zealand is already New Zealand farmers are at the at the cutting edge of efficient farm production in the world. Um, there's a point where you can't get blood out of a stone, and uh, and 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 so people have to be mindful of that. On the other side of it, uh, if you think about it, the housing market in New Zealand—not all of it, but a fair chunk of it—has got the backstop called a welfare system. You know, a large amount of New Zealand uh, tenancies, uh, rental tenancies, have their have their uh, renters subsidised by taxpayers. So it's basically underpinning the marketplace for rent, uh, for housing, and, and in effect, the the interest rates that th- those um, landlords have to perhaps borrow at. So look, it's it's a vexed issue, but the only way you can um, beat this sort of stuff is with the constant pressure, the constant water on the stone dripping away, and uh, that's what Feds has to do. There's not much else. You're, you're doing good work, Richard. Oh, thank you. I think there's a saying in Fed's speak, be the dripping voice of reason. So <laughs> hopefully we're doing that. Yeah. So before we go, one other thing I'd like to talk about is how's uh, you're, you're into policing and, and rural crime and stuff. There's a there's a massive problem with that. Uh, since my time 14 years ago, it was bad enough. But it seems to me that it's grown like topsy uh, where there's less policing and more crime, uh, more drug-addled people in the communities, um, and just people with lack of respect for the property of others. What's what's uh, your your angle now? What can we do to um, perhaps take the edge off this stuff? Because crimes aren't going away. Uh, it's a matter of what us being more self-reliant. Yeah, look, it's it's an interesting one. You know, I think we've got quite a few uh, adverse societal uh, th- things happening at the moment that have sort of come together to cause it. You know, it's, a, it's there's always an irony to me. You know, after March fifteenth, we changed our gun laws, and you know, um, licensed firearms owners handed in certain weapons, etc. But we never targeted the gangs um, to get their firearms off them, and we we're told that it was all with a view to making us as a society safer. You know, we've seen more gun crime since. Um, which is a real concern. And it says to me it's more about the, the people than it is about the, the firearms and that sort of thing. But, look, you know, fundamentally we do need to resource our, our police better. You know, when I when I advocate for um, for farmers to get a better deal from policing, you know, what I'm very clear 
about is that I'm not trying to take police resources away from um, from urban areas because they need them as much as us, if not more. So we probably need to resource the the you know the police far better in the first place. And we need you know realistically, once people do get caught, we need to do you know they need to be punished. And we're probably not seeing enough of that either at this point in time. You know there are quite a few really cool initiatives that we do have going on in conjunction with the police. You know particularly to try and get better reporting of crimes or suspicious activity because the police can't can't justify committing resources to certain areas and you know certain rural areas unless they've got the case of well x number of crimes or, or suspicious activity has been reported here therefore we'll um we, we'll um send those resources that way and so farmers can report these crimes far better there's actually an app that's being piloted at the moment but obviously there's um the the police number that can be called as well but really encouraging farmers just to actually report over report things essentially you know obviously no, i'm not saying make stuff up but you know any any little thing that you normally would say well the police won't do anything about it report it so that we can justify getting better resources out our way in order to stop this crime well look i applaud anything that can improve um the the response time as well i've i've had some problems and getting to the right person quickly enough was really difficult um and in fact if i didn't have friends in in uh, high places i suppose i wouldn't have got there nearly as quickly as i did uh, uh but neighborhood watch is that still something you promote in the rural areas are you still in, in sort of um pushing that sort of line where, yeah, well, where na- neighbors help neighbors yeah, look, it's it's all part of that keeping an eye on things. So you're yeah, de- definitely promoting that, you know, especially on on quieter rural roads. You know, neighbours keeping an eye on what vehicles are going up and down the road and that. And this this um, crime reporting app um, that was piloted in Canterbury and it's about to go out into some other regions as well. Um, that's exactly what that's about, so that you don't have to you know wait online on you know on on the phone to report something. Right. You can just right. say. Car um, license plate, blah blah blah, went past at this time. Looked a bit suspicious, and it's all there. And if anything comes from it, the police have all that information already. Fantastic. Look, uh, we might get you back to talk about that when it becomes a bit more widely uh, available. Uh, in the meantime, I have serious concerns about surveillance of cities. Uh, the way that there seems to be blanket surveillance of every person, whether you like it or not, you're under surveillance. Uh, and even in downtown Invercargill, that's going to happen at a massive cost. But I have no problem with um, locals uh, keeping their eyes and ears open um, and reporting stuff that's that's not right because, gee, isolation brings some um, brings some problems when you've got rural crime and crims entering your property uninvited. Uh, well, no crims invited, but uninvited people come into your property. It's it's a big and it's a big, it's as I know there's other types of uh, types of violations on 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 people and persons but having had it done to me uh, a couple of years on i still uh, am not uh, over what happened and the reminders come every day when you go into your workshop and you look for that one thing that you haven't used for a couple of years and it's not there and you think, damn, they got that too. <laughs> so, so look, I uh, applaud any initiative. Rural security is big for uh, for uh, um, property right um, uh, retention is fundamental for me. And the fact that we've lost this sort of um, uh, what's mine is mine and nobody else's um, ethos is a worry to me. But um, hey, we could go on on that for a long time. We started this whole 
discussion on economics and um, and marketing and things like that. And that's perhaps, uh, sorry to divert off that. We'll get you back, Richard, if we can. We said we'd take half an hour of your time. You're jet lagged. You look fresh as a daisy. It hasn't really a uh, week on. You're, you're looking pretty good. So we'll, we'll um, um, thank you now for uh, your, your input here today. And hopefully, as I said, get you back in the near future. You speak really well and you know your subjects perfectly. So fantastic. Hey, look, thanks very much, Don. I'm just very, of you yeah, really enjoyed the time um, and be happy to come on again sometime. Thank you. Just waiting for the Reserve Bank report to be out next week, Richard. You might be back sooner than you think. Have a good one. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Cheers, guys.